Mark, why don't you talk a little bit? Purple Eyes, Scotty Baldwin. Hey, hi everybody. How's everyone doing tonight? Hey, 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 hey. We're here. Hey, hey, hey. Singular <laughs> force getting Jesse Ventura elected. All Scotty's doing is thinking about how how bad this sounds. No, this sounds amazing. <laughs> He's I want if 50, I could fifty dollar Amazon Prime mics. If I could have this mic in front of me all the time, do they have like a harmonica holder that will have this mic and these headphones on all the time? We could get you one. I guess I would just like that, to that's wake a up. Special guest kind of deal. So hey, you're in. Just like in the morning, like hey girls, get ready for school. Yeah, check one. Hey, uh. yes, honey, I would like another coffee. <clears throat> Are you uh, are you touring now or no? I no, mean, I just, obviously you're home. But. I just got back from Taipei. Sweet. Working with the biggest, arguably the biggest artist in the last thirty years in the world, twenty years. Oh, put a little compressor yeah, on does, it afterwards. How does America not know anything about that dude? Um, they don't know about Lee Home, and Lee Home isn't even as big as Ame. Ame is the biggest artist with whom I've worked. And it's like a whole different world. Yep. Huh? Yep. Asia is a whole different thing. And they don't, candidly, they don't know about as much about, they're aware of American artists, but they, they don't tour over there and they really can't. So, um, how do you get those gigs? They just call you and they're just like, fuck, you're good at your job. So let's do this. It's, I'm, I'm kind of the go-to hot Western. I'm like, I'm like the guy. So I'm the first call in asia for western engineers made a name for himself over there yep i sure did so i get the call and if it's big shows and big money and it has to be precise and then you're the guy i'm the guy and i'm knocking them down off the list one by one i'll get them all because it's great asia the musicianship over there is super different too they're extremely um truly extremely talented and american musicians um, would ha- would have something to say about that, but they'd be wrong. They think it's all about feel, and it's musicians in Asia, Singapore, and Taipei, uh, Taiwan, and China. They have nothing. I mean, American musicians have nothing on them. Really? Yeah, because a lot of them, a lot of musicians uh, study, and they, a lot of them hey. come over to the states and go to Berkeley or Williams or some uh, yeah you know, reputable school, yep. and then they go back. And they can all sight read, and they can all do feel, and they they know all the Italian musical terms. And working with them is a, is a, saves time, hmm. so they can all read charts, and they can all because. But the beef that I have with American musicians and Western musicians in in general is they they all go, oh yeah, but they don't have that uh, they don't have that feel. And it's like uh, yeah, they do. They just know how to qualify it better. They have better resolution. They, yeah. they, and it's it's not like magically there are more you know deeper understanding of music in asia it's just that they their resolution is different they understand that it's a higher resolution they're working with it's fascinating and competition actually. like i i think pound for pound <clears throat> either singapore or or taiwan have the best musicians in the world they're most diverse multilingual they know tons of different styles of music they can play a different tons of different styles of music and uh western musicians just that they'll never really cross you know the western market they don't really know who taylor swift is over there and we're no, not gonna know you're not who. gonna know wong lee home or you think it'll ever you think it'll never cross it'll never cross 
there's geopolitical boundaries will not let that happen. <laughs> all you get is BTS. Yep, that's all it's you get. It just shows you like <laughs> you know, BTS like, and that's it. Like I mean, how how big the fucking world is, right? I mean, simultaneously big and small in the sense that one they won't cross and two you're doing the sound for them so it's like it's like a ginormous world on one level mm-hmm. like where you have these lines in the sand but then you got a guy from fucking the twin cities like doing the sound yeah it's uh <laughs> it, it it's they they certainly appreciate quality over there um all of my experiences especially in the past five years with with uh, lee Hum and yeah. ame have been outstanding they have great artists over there and they really prize quality why you versus some local tech? Um, it's a sensibility issue that I have with the music. And um, it, that's odd to me because I don't speak, my, or my Mandarin getting it's getting better. better yeah. But it's, um, it, it's an emotive quality, and there's a musical nature to singing in Mandarin that English, it, well, I'll just say it's different than English. Mm-hmm. So there's a musicality to the tones of Mandarin. There's four tones in Mandarin. And you, so even in the speaking, there's, there's a quality to the speaking and the singing voice that is, oh, lends itself to musicality. It's very, very, um, they're a musical culture in Asia. And I, I really love it over there because, so so I don't know what the lyrics mean all the time. Okay. (laughs) So how would you? So what I do is I, the the, the production team will get me copies of the, uh, lyrics and then in English and then make sense of them, turn it into a, a, a sensible a version, story, a story. And then I can see what it's about. Is it about a car? Is it about a love? Is it about something you've lost? Is it about uh, your daughter growing up and, and, and marrying another man? So that, you know, he's the man in her life now. Is it, what is, what is it about the story? And then that, uh, that um, objectively that, well, that sort of informs my sensibility about how to mix a song. So I can then go at it saying, this is about this. So I can do this. Um, there was one song that Ame played, that Ame did, that it was about um, distance. And and so what I decided to do was, even though we were playing in an arena, in Taipei Arena, which is large, it's, you know, sixteen or 18,000 people, I put a certain reverb on a snare drum, with, you know, with an eighth note delay. So it didn't just go... <laughs> It went, eh, eh. it made it sound like it was distant. And that was on purpose because that all works into the psychology of how a song can feel different from when you listen in headphones or earbuds to when you hear it in a venue. In a venue, it's normally engineers mix stereo program, high volume, that's it. <clears throat> they get you with power. Where I, where the thing about me in the industry is that I get people with sensibility and with depth and I can create a different dimension and feel it is feel it's, it's, it's about, it's actually a question that you, you're sort of making me ask myself is what makes me different than other engineers. And what that is, is my sensibility about note value is very different than any engineer, at least I've ever worked around or around whom I've worked. It's not just with, which you can dial in on a desk and it's not just volume, which is the depth. It, there's a other a dimension that I mix in, which is sort of an emotive dimension. I'm trust me. I but that's music, right? I mean, music is in fact emotive, right? So you're bringing you yes to the table. So yeah. I mean, essentially, would you consider yourself an artist? A hundred percent. 
And, and that's, and I would never break off my own arm to pat myself on the back because if I don't do it, somebody else will, and they'll Mm -hmm. do a serviceable job. It'll be serviceable. It won't be as good, but but it will be enough to get people happy. But I, I, and usually the artists that go after me and with whom I come to an agreement to work, I'm really super invested in learning the material as much as possible. And that's why I'm committed to maybe eventually mastering mandarin and sort yeah. of getting in just because you got you got to learn the language in order to yeah, the, experience the, yeah, the right. people yeah and the subtlety and, yeah. the, and that's why i spend time all the time i can out in the culture yeah. like i had six weeks in taipei i really fully immersed i ate things that i didn't even know exist yeah good for you other than uh music i mean had you learned any other languages because, I mean, you've learned the language of music. Like, clearly, you have a yeah. sense of all things music and the sounds and, 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 and how that all plays out. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, music comes natural to me. Uh, just being a you know, kid born in the late 60s and, and really taking in all the analog music that was presented in the 70s and 80s. It's hard to not... I would think it'd be hard to be in America and not be sensitive to yeah. that sort of pop that was really yeah. people really playing. Yeah. I mean, but there's, there's being sensitive to it and then there's embodying it in a way that can be projected and consumed by others. Yes. And, <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like, like I, I get your point on, Hey, people, you know, people across the seventies were listening to the radio and we're being kind of inundated with this music, but like you're taking it to a whole nother level, which is I'm able to feel that. And then, reproduce it that, that's at what it, scale if i do my job uh, if i do a great job you sort of don't know i'm there perfect it's um it's being trans it's a one of transparency where suddenly you you could ask somebody how how did the show sound and they go oh i don't it was i get it was great like I, I was there <laughs> yeah and, and and you were yeah it sounded exactly like it did and that's where <clears throat> prince and i sort of disagreed on how to mix it mm-hmm. but ultimately i sort of just like the glacial will that i have i just sort of push through his desire for me to mix a certain way and then i push through because i was after all i was representing what the audience wanted to hear yeah pro- and, and probably kept you coming back we ready d i was just gonna say we should start the podcast This is Purple Highs. I am Mark Bondi here with my co-host DJ Dudley D. And we're chronicling the days of wild. We're telling Prince stories. We're talking about Paisley Park. See, Prince was so cool that he would bring fans out to Paisley Park and like he did it again and again and again. He opened up the doors of Paisley Park to people like Dustin when he was Dustin before he was really Dudley D and myself and we'd get to see shows, we'd get to experience parties and you know Prince created a whole subculture and you know we want to tell those stories and talk about how people connected with prince and what that community looked like so we're, we're here to do interviews and talk to people and get out there and tell stories and today we have a very special guest 
the specialist we've ever had. The specialist no. we've ever had. You know, no disrespect to any of our other guests. Yeah, I mean, because they're awesome. And know? I'm actually looking around right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, who is this person? Uh, Scotty Baldwin. Scotty P did uh, front of house sound for Prince for sixteen years. Six, yeah, sixteen years. So this is gonna be fun. We're gonna just jump in because. That's what we do. So you can drop the needle anywhere in the timeline. We don't even have to do it linear. <laughs> no. And I'll just you'll just drop the needle on a year and I'll tell you what was going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. We're just gonna drop the needle on all things Scotty. So Scotty, why don't you just kind of like lay out we gotta set the frame so people understand where we're going. If we don't kinda put you in perspective, they're gonna have no idea what's going on. So Scotty, why don't you give us just the resume of Scotty Baldwin? Who are you and like, what did you do for Prince? I was a kid who grew up in Minneapolis and who Prince was sort of always that soundtrack to my young life at the time. I grew up in, in high school. I was listening to For You and Prince and, Prince and, and uh, uh, 1999. I remember getting that and sort of hiding that. You know, and my listening to it in my sister's uh, bedroom. You know, we'd listen to that. We've had a lot of those stories of yep. people hiding, yeah, the Prince music. <laughs> and then, and then, so he sort of set the soundtrack of my, of my life and of my childhood anyway. And then I wanted to play guitar. I saw Eddie Van Halen playing, and I said I want to do that. I bought a guitar the next day, wow. and found out quickly I was didn't really have the aptitude to play, but I was good at teching guitar and through one way or another i got introduced to michael bland and he prince's drummer and he knew he watched my ethic michael's very astute observer of things and he said man i want you to come and work with me do you know drums and i said no i don't know anything about him he said perfect then you can learn how i play and not set it up for yourself so that really worked out well um basically quit college to work with prince for five years as a drum technician and that sort of that was my college in a way. What what year was that? Was with um, uh, Michael B. Michael B. was uh, basically eighty nine through ninety four. Okay. I think nice. I left Michael to uh, mix Sheila E. So Sheila noticed me mixing at these gigs because I was be at these shows at Bunkers and and uh, Whiskey Junction, and the sound engineers couldn't always make it, so I would fill in, and then I would do what sounded right for the song. And Sheila heard that at at uh i actually have the show on dat which is crazy i have the show that <laughs> nice. got me my first touring gig and i sent that to sheila a couple of years ago said remember this you know and um sheila said i'm gonna steal you from prince i'll double you well she didn't she said i'll, I'll double <laughs> she said i'll double you i'll double your pay <laughs> and i think she paid me like 200 more a week and then um took me on the road and i went nice. right jumped right into the fire mixing clubs and and um, kept getting noticed. Seal heard me mix, and Seal called me and said, I want you to mix. And he was really hot at the time. And then it just sort of kept, I kept getting noticed by these artists. And at one point, uh, Maxwell heard me mix Sheila, and then he brought me out. He's a big R&B artist. And then um, uh, from there, it was big. Maxwell was my, sort of my, that was the lynch, that, that was a linchpin artist for me, because he, a lot hinged on him, because there was a show at the Greek theater in LA, a Maxwell show. I think it was Greek theater. And after the concert, members of earth, wind and fire, hmm. Brian McKnight nice. and some, somebody else, they were waiting to talk to me. Like, can I get your number? Cause I want you to mix us. And it was funny to have artists in line. And I, I remember, I remember that moment going, Oh, don't forget this moment. This is really cool. 
because I have all these artists wanting to get my number. D'Angelo, I think, was there. So I, I gave my number out to everybody and then kept working and kept getting noticed. But it was only really coming back with Prince in 2000 to mix him when Takumi called and said, he wants you to come out, man, and tune the PA and see if you're ready to go on tour. And I said, sure. And so that led to 2000 to, through 2004, through musicology. And Takumi's this guitar tech at Guitar the time. tech, yeah. How, how did that relationship start? How did you and Takumi meet? Probably, God, I don't even know. It was probably something, I, he probably called me cold out of nowhere and said, I'm, to, I'm his guitar tech. Yeah. Can you come out to Paisley Park? Because I can't imagine how it started otherwise. So did, right. did Prince at that point know? So so just to flash forward, you, you mix Prince front of house in various forms, fashion from 2000-ish to piano and a microphone, 2016. And... And then I left him in in Auckland, New Zealand. Auckland, so I New left Zealand. in February of 2016. So various tours, various bands, various yeah. everything on off doing you think, things. Do you think Prince. Prince heard you somewhere? Like he went and saw Sheila, or maybe he was it talking was, to it Sheila. Was bunkers. What it was oh, was bunkers. Was, yeah, it was bunkers. mixing at bunkers. The the it, it was bunkers was sort of a culture, a way oh, of yeah. life. You always showed up on Sunday and Monday nights, and then subsequent to the or it was it used to be Monday. Monday yeah, only, only yeah, Monday. Yeah. It was. Monday, Tuesday, and then it changed to Sunday, Monday. And um, everyone who was anyone showed up there. I mean, Irene Cara came one night and sat in. And all these different musicians, the, the lead singer of the, the band Ace, like Paul Rogers, I think, came in. All these big, big artists. Big names. Everyone who would come in town, Seal, that's where he heard me mix. And they, they came in town, and then they all knew to go to Bunkers. So it was sort of this hub, a spoke, in the, like the hub, the wheel, where everyone came to hear and it, possibly see Prince. Yeah, and possibly see Prince. You know, I think it's interesting because one time I was at Bunkers when he mm-hmm. was doing the Third Eye Girl era, and I saw Prince in the corner at Bunkers, and at the same time they had VH1 playing Purple Rain in the other corner <laughs> at Bunkers. So it was Prince in one corner and Prince in the other corner, and I was like, oh, this is really quite interesting here. <laughs> this this Only in Minneapolis yeah. can you see Prince... In one corner, like in the flesh, and in the other corner, on the TV. I mean, they, I mean, that place was, is really still, right? Like the spot for the Minneapolis sound, right? You have all your major Minneapolis musicians, and Prince would frequent. I mean, do you think, I, I didn't really think about the, the sound guy being a part of that, but really, you became a part of the whole Minneapolis sound. In a sense, yeah, I had a good mentor. Cody Anderson was a good mentor because he was the original sound engineer for Dr. Mambo's Combo. And he was the one who sort of instilled fearlessness in me. Mm-hmm. He just said, don't be afraid of these guys. You just do your thing. You yeah, do right. you. And and so I just sort of attacked it. And I would, um, and quite frequently, I would, there'd be nights that I'd have one too many beers and I'd get really <laughs> super creative. As and, many of us have at yeah. Bunkers. And I mean, there was a particular night where, popcorn. where Billy Franzi, uh, his, I used to try as a, um, as an experiment, I took a, a, a dry sound of the guitar before it went to the amp. And on that night, that very night, his amp blew out. Wow. And the next song up was, um, uh, Aerosmith and, um, right. And, uh. Billy looked at me and he looked out and he said, my amp's dead. And I said, don't worry, man. And I took another <laughs> swig off my rolling rock and I turned the channel down and I unpadded the, the channel and I blew it all the way open. 
And he start, I said, play. And he started to play. And I moved it about a quarter of an inch off the bottom. And it went. <laughs> and he went, yeah. And I never <laughs> would have done roll, that. Man. Yeah, I never Rock would have done that. Had I, I probably blew out the, the op amp in that channel. But I, <laughs> it, was, it was a fearlessness that everyone sort of had. And there was sort of a. Michael Bland was really good at instilling that in me as well. Just a reckless abandon. You have to attack everything you do. Michael was actually instrumental in um, my creativity. Yeah. And being all in and full on. Is it like, is it, I mean, it's almost a warrior mentality. That's what it like, is. Like, we're, 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 we're face painting yeah. up, we're going to war, That's right. we're going to go play this music, and we're going to do it. Not, not unlike Prince's after shows. Yeah. And that's where, because you knew on the gig, and all the fans who went to a Prince show, it was going to be, it was going to be actually basically locked in to what it was nice and the, tight yep nice and tight where we really let loose were the after shows yeah. and of course that's part of the whole thing oh. is that you gonna, can really unleash and let it all hang out and we're going to talk about that so so takumi gets you connected brings you out to paisley and essentially the world is your oyster at that point you go from sheila e to seal to maxwell d'angelo maybe mixed in there yep, mixed in. coming yep. back into the minneapolis sound and now you're rolling with prince and we're going to talk about that a bit but before we do i want to hit a pause button and kind of go back in time to all things growing up minneapolis you talked about you know quietly listening to prince music for you you know your sister had 1999 what was it like growing up in this city with prince music in the early 80s for me it was more about disco in the <laughs> 70s and 80s than it was prince i i listened to way more disco i had uh three sisters two old two of my sisters are older and they would constantly play disco records and so to me um they, I used to get dragged to church kind of by the year on Saturday nights or Saturday afternoons to go to church. And I never was into church because my church was like Donna Summer was the pastor. <laughs> and all we would do is dance, listen to Earth, Wind and Fire, speak to the sky or these old Earth, Wind and Fire records or Lakeside or Donna Summer. And we would just dance. You had Giorgio Moroder as the producer. You had, you, you, that was the, that was a, a um, for gay people, in the 70s and 80s when that was their church disco music was the sort of the the sermon and so that's why i think it was very important when donna summer passed that people recognize how important she was yeah to to the lgbtqia plus community she was everything because she was what got them on the dance floor that's why when you listen to disco now I, i'm going off a little bit you know i like back, it but i like it when you listen to disco now you go god this song's like nine minutes long right so why is it nine minutes long it's because once they got you on the dance floor they wanted to keep you there and then they could do what dustin did which is bring you somewhere else mm -hmm. and take you somewhere else um so how did how did your disco love translate into prince music in the early 80s like were you you know you're growing up in minneapolis prince is doing his thing what what year did you graduate from high school 85 okay so like purple rain comes out in what 84 that's right so how does that kind of inform thanks dudley he's fixing my mic how does that inform kind of your music sensibilities where where does prince kind of sit in that in that landscape well what was cool about prince and what i'm sure he recognized was that he was not going to be a disco artist yeah he had way 
Thank God. Too much in his <laughs> mind for that. So it wasn't just going to be a Nile <clears throat> Rogers jam. Right. It was going to be, he was going to have formation and he understood sort of innately because you're talking about a guy who never learned how to read music. Um, he, he innately knew uh, about arrangement, especially live arrangement. He knew when he would, he told me once that when he would write a tune, he knew how he would record it and then he knew how he was going to arrange it live. When he was writing it, really, he already knew what he was going to do differently live, and how whether it would be faster or slower, or how he was going to cultivate. He saw the whole thing. Yeah, he 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 was. Um, there's there's just nobody quite that had the vision, or the aural vision of how that was going to end up in a sound landscape, and therefore sound was really super important to him, as evidenced by my, oh, you know. During the time, I didn't mix him straight for 16 years. Yeah. I was I was sort of, I was there for sure, 2000 to 2005, you could say. Um, I left at some point, 2000, early 2005. And then I would come back and do special shows or house shows in LA or one-offs and things back and forth. Then I came back again in 2012 and worked with him and talked with him and kind of got paid to be weirdly on staff and just sort of there. A counselor type? Sort of consigliere or whatever yeah. right just a sword sort of, that was in my mind yeah, actually and it was just sort of um that was a strange like couple of years 2012 2013 but you were and, also mixing or no yeah i was mixing yeah. so i was on the road with someone already and um but i would come back in my off time and just sort of be on staff help and um that's when he was kind of cultivating the third eye girl band and um and he and then again in 2015 uh and then uh, until his passing so what made me stick there or made me get called back, especially after we had a couple of disagreements and I left a couple of times was that I think he, he, well, he understood that I embodied the music yeah, and I understood what it was about and he didn't have to sort of look over his shoulder to know if I understood what he wanted. Well, do you, you think that you that, cared about it? Do you right? think? Yeah. And unfortunately I made the mistake of telling him once <laughs> that I cared about it. Yeah. <laughs> and in the middle of the argument, that was actually a full-blown argument in the middle of the the soundstage. And I said, you know what, man? I'm not here for the money. I'm here because I care. And he stopped the conversation. He said, nope, we don't talk about that word. We're men. We're grown men. We don't yeah. use that word. And I was like, a I'm thinking, what word? I didn't understand. He just didn't want to Money hear. or care? What's word? Yeah. <laughs> it was a certain level of professionalism, though, right? Like in his mind, like if you cared too much, maybe you were... No, he, what it was in that, in that context of that <clears throat> argument, disagreement was he didn't want to, he wouldn't want to know that somebody cared more than he did. Huh. Interesting. And, and the, how, what happened just prior to that was that he wanted me to use a, this isn't really a deep, dark secret, but he wanted me to use this beat up old Paragon soundboard. Oh yeah. You know, the boat anchor yeah, I'm talking it's about. It's still there, right? It's in the basement somewhere. It's, it was, it had its time. It was terrible. And there were a bunch of channels that had tape over him. It didn't work. And he wanted to go play the Fox Theater in Atlanta. I don't know what year. And I said, absolutely not. Like, not with that gear. <laughs> Takumi told me, you, you want to use that soundboard? And he's like, yeah, it's cool. We'll roll with it. And I said, well, I, I, I'm not going to roll with it. I'm not going to put my rip. And there's no way. This thing is, I said, there's nothing wrong. Oh, he said, what's wrong with that soundboard? It's done many tours for me. And I said, I had a great line. I said, there's nothing wrong with that soundboard except it's got one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel. <laughs> and and ain't just, nobody uh, coming up to ask me for my number after yeah, that gig. Yeah. So I, You can only do what you can do with that thing. So he, uh, I mean, this is a sort of 
remember when anecdote, and I don't mean to to make it you know go into this, but it was a that was a full blown argument that went from one room into the other, and then I said, knowing that if I made it into an artistic statement, yeah, that it would have more effect on him. So I was smart enough not to ever talk to him about, well, that's probably 250 hertz and I can pull a little of the low end. Like he, you lost him after five or six words. The technical argument yep. was, was irrelevant. That's correct. So I said to him, in, in talking about this soundboard, I said, here's the thing, man. Right now there's a woman in Atlanta whose phone cord is probably still swinging because she's super excited. She just hung up with her hairdresser. She has a hair appointment for Saturday afternoon because she's going to see us play on Saturday night. And she's sitting in the balcony and she's going to, that's going to sound shitty to her. And I'm not going to do that to her and neither should you. And there was like a, there was about a second and a half of silence, but it was like an hour long because I knew that that was a moment. You hit him. Yeah. It was a really long, I, I still, you know, it's weird. I actually just repeating this story right now, I kind of got a little nervous saying it because that's exactly how I said it. And there was this moment, and he wasn't swearing then. Dustin will attest to that. He wasn't, around that time, wasn't swearing. And he said, get a pen and paper and get in my fucking office. <laughs> and he spun around and walked away, and I went, oh, shit. And I remember kind of sloughing down, and then I went and got a pen and paper, and I went to Takumi, and I said, you got to come with me in his office. you got to come there, because it's going to get bad. And he's like, I'm not going in there. <laughs> so I walked, in his, I walked down the hallway and went into his office, and as I walked in, he was on the computer and was trying not to pay attention to me. And um, I heard the weird, this will conjure up memories from people. As I walked in, I heard, you got mail. <laughs> I heard like the AOL, you got mail, because he used to have an old AOL, yeah. NPG2000 at AOL.com. That, that was his address. He put it on a song. And I heard the you got mail. And then I stood there in the doorway and he took a, pile of papers and he threw them and kind of tried to throw them at me i was 10 feet away and in pr perfect prince fashion all the papers landed and the one that he wanted me to see landed exactly in front of me facing me and it was the last bill the last the price of the pa per week right the, yeah. the price of renting stuff per week and he said here that's your bill you can pay it out of your pay and i said well man i I don't have enough commas to cover that. And he's like, oh, I see, Scotty. Okay, so is, if it's my money, you're okay. It's a minute. If it's, not, if it's your money, you're, and I was like, I don't know, man. He said, you know, if we did it my way, we'd all make more money. And I said, you know what, man? Some money costs too much to make. And I realized that was a good line, and I spun around and I walked out. Good for you. Yep. And I went to my soundboard, and I was had a stiff upper lip, you know, and I was still kind of nervous, you know, because you never really got... I never got 100% comfortable around him, but I grabbed my uh, effects units and I like, wrapped my mic cable around him and I was in a huff and I walked off and I left dragging a microphone with me. And, um, and the next morning, Sukumi called and said, Hey man, you, like you're showing up today, right? And I was like, no, fuck him. I'm not coming in. And he said, no, don't do this, man. Because it probably made his life yeah. harder. But I said, no, I'm not doing it. And I didn't come in. And then we made up months later when he had a sound guy screw up his mix in St. Paul. It sounded bad. And yep. That, and then was Takumi, that the, no, that was yeah, it was XL. And it was, um, there were like three shows, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was during the celebration. I was at one of those. Shit, I was probably at three of those. That was was that <laughs> yeah. one that one was that when they brought in a whole sound system and then he got rid of it and yep. brought in a whole different. Because I didn't system. mix yeah. it. 
Because you were there too, because you were doing the funky bald head thing. Yeah. I, I was, um, some guy named Reggie was mixing it. And Takumi said, just show up. He doesn't, he won't know you're coming. Just show up and he'll be really happy to see you guys can make up. And I had happened to be coming back from a funeral of, my, uh, of a friend uh, that both Prince and I knew, uh, Doug Nelson, a bass player at Bunkers. And so I had a suit on even. I showed up. I just drove back from the funeral. I drove right to the thing. And I was sitting out in front of the house in a suit. And Prince showed up and jumped on the riser and gave me a like that half hug, you know. Yeah. And then just started riding the sound guy about the sound. <laughs> and then he said. Welcome back, Scotty. Yep. <laughs> and he said, Scotty, can you help? And it was only the kick drum. And I was like, um, I looked at the sound guy. I'm like, because there's a brotherhood there. Right. right. And I looked at him. I went, and he was like, no, go ahead, man. So I leaned in and I quickly in 30 seconds went, oh, no, this, this, this. And I was like, John, hit the kick. Doom, doom. Yeah, it sounded great. And Prince said to the other sound guy, now get a piece of paper and a pen, which was eerily reminiscent <laughs> of what he said to right. me. He said, get a piece of paper and a pen and write down how that kick drum sounds. Write down what he did. Because that's how somebody from Minneapolis makes a kick drum sound. So somebody from Minneapolis, it's a good transition back. Do you feel like your caring about the music and the sound was based on your experience growing up in Minneapolis? Yes, because he had mentioned multiple times throughout our relationship over 26 years that we're from Minneapolis. We do things differently. When I wrote the liner notes for One Night Alone Live, uh, Lynn Anderson called me and said, he wants you to write some notes about how you recorded the record. I said, great. I wrote them, sent them to Lynn. Prince got them. Lynn said he loved them, and he's going to put them in the center of the book. And I went, great. And he didn't put them in the center. He put them somewhere near the center, and it, but it was my whole thing. And he called me the next day and asked me if he could remove one line because I wrote, he believes in and belongs to himself. And Prince said, can I take that line out? And I said, uh, sure. I mean, I don't know why. And he said, you know who I belong to. And I went, oh, okay. And he meant Jehovah. Yeah. Uh. So to get to your question specifically, he, after the record came out and then we did the Tonight Show, um, and then we did, we did the Las Vegas DVD around that time. Yep, Las Vegas at the Aladdin. Yep, at the Aladdin. And then we did the Tonight Show. They were really close to one another, like within a day or two of each other, I think, or something like that. Yeah, we played Aladdin first and then went to Leno. Leno. So after Leno, we went out for a uh, party. Prince wanted to go and party at some club named Fernando's or Nando's or something like that. Uh, some, some club in LA. And we went out and I got called outside. It was like, Prince wants to talk to you. I went outside and Prince and I were standing in this side thing. People were still waiting to get in. They just couldn't tell it was Prince behind the lattice work. But I thought it was funny. All these people were trying to get in. Prince is like right at, you know, like three feet from him. <laughs> and he said, Scotty, I read what you wrote for the record. And then I reread it. And then I read it a third time. And then I said, this guy understands what it's like to be from Minneapolis. Only us, only us from Minneapolis, only we know how it things should be. And I was like, cool, man. And then we went back in the club. What do you think it is about Minneapolis and the space and the history, the culture, the music? Like, like what makes that? unique all of it even the weather like he we we freeze half the year none of us should be here but we're here and we're forged of something else we're different we can take it and we because we know the good time is better than the bad so we go through some of the bad all the time but we also prince is an artist that understood the seasons of people's lives 
What do you mean by that? Well, there are four seasons in a year. Ask somebody who lives in San Diego. I guarantee you can look it up right now on your phone. San Diego is 70 right now. It's always the same. But Prince understood that people go through different eras and different transitions. And he, I, I believe, we never specifically talked about weather, but my, my thought is that he understood that things are seasonal in our lives and that we go through different periods. He went through a lot of periods in his career where he was laughed at, where he was looked at as a genius business-wise and then mocked for that deal he signed because there were all these stipulations. Right? He went through a lot to to be artistically be able to say what he wanted. And so, it, so Minneapolis, kind of the ebb and flow of the seasonality, the winters, the cold, the getting stuck in, like becomes part of the ethos of the Minneapolis sound. Like there's a connection between just our our experience that's different than other places, i.e. San Diego, you're, you're making me think of something. If you look back at when all of his stuff was cut, was recorded, I would think it would be interesting to figure out what was recorded in the winter. Yeah, a lot of time spent in the studio. I yeah. guess you know me well. I don't do. like winter. I'm also curious. That's like one of my favorite lines. <laughs> what is it? What did you say? I guess you know me well. I don't like winter, right? Like, Because, I mean, from Strange Relationship, because yeah. it's like a... It's like a real, like, I mean, who likes winter? Do you guys like winter? I mean, I hate winter. I, mean, I can't even imagine the last time Prince scraped his windshield, though. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but there's an experience there that's different. And I heard Michael Blandon in an interview talking about how musicians and kind of the, really the Paisley Park scene, uh, that late 80s, early 90s deal was like, hey, we worked, right? Like, it was January... What, what else we got going on? That's right. Like, we're going to just, it's Tuesday. Let's Re work. We're rehearsing for four hours. Let's we're work. Let's work. Hours. And that's what it is, is we have, <clears throat> it's a perspective and it's a, he was, you know, I, I mean, he, I don't think it's a secret. He was proud of Minneapolis. It's not, it's not, he was like the king of this area. So he stayed where he was comfortable and, and knew he was king. He could have moved, at one point he was thinking of moving to Miami, like all of it. All, the whole kit and caboodle down to Miami. Mm -hmm. He had this love affair with Miami for a few years. He didn't do it. Why? Because the real estate was more... No, he didn't care about any of that stuff. He had. He didn't have to look at the right side of the menu. You think that's why he put a glam slam in Miami? I'm, I'm, you know what I mean? He's got one yeah. here. He likes yeah. Miami. Let me build one well, there. Well, he, he not so secretly said he... Well, no, he did say literally that he's always trying... Because we were trying to find opening acts in 2000 in, for musicology. And we spent a lot of time at front of house, just Prince and me sitting there and talking about stuff. And at one point he said, do you have any, do you have any artists that you think would be cool to open for us? And I said, yeah, Kenny Loggins. And I wasn't kidding, but he was like, ain't no danger zone up in here, Scotty. And I was like, um, but he was looking for artists to open and they had to be sort of, I don't know, it was about, it was about, um, it, he was into challenging himself and other people and he said i've always tried to i want to have an opening act that makes me have to work harder because he said i've always tried to recreate the movie right the time yep Coming so let's go whooping let, them up so yep. let's go back in time you're in high school you're listening to prince purple rain got the album you're secretly listening to 1999 yep. did you see prince during this period like are you no okay 
uh, the, uh, I was already working for Michael Bland and I say working for Michael Bland. And I always, when I started mixing, I worked with people, yep. but I worked for Michael Bland. Um, I was his drum tech and I was a student and I was learning. And so I, uh, felt like I was, I was a student then and Michael was my teacher and Michael's a hell of a person from whom to learn music and theory and attitude. And, um, so what I did is I, at one point, uh, Michael said, Hey man, at the fine line, he said, man, can you walk the room? Make sure Cody hasn't sounded good out in the whole, you know, in the, in the venue. And I said, sure. So at one point I knew Prince was upstairs and I kind of went upstairs and I stopped when I got around the corner of that stairway because Prince and Gilbert turned and looked down at me and I went, Ooh, you know, and that was the first time I had seen him in person. And there's something that happens and that happened to everyone, whether you were a star or whether you were a fan, no matter who it was, only the people that didn't know who he was didn't care. Everybody else cared because you knew where you were the first time you saw him. And I don't care if you're, I've said it famously before, or I've said it before. The composer, say famously, it's the, 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 the <laughs> composer, John Williams. Yep. I bet he respected Prince. Dave Grohl respected Prince. Well, that's like, you know. Dimebag when... Daryl respected Prince. <laughs> Kenny Loggins respects Prince. He has a universal mm -hmm. respect from all different genres and that is super rare. And that's like when Prince walks into the Oscars or the Grammys. You know what I mean? Like everybody, like everybody else will walk in the room. There's so and so, but Prince walks in. Everybody, like Prince is here. There's a star Prince. amongst stars. Yeah, a star amongst. The and stars. you spent you spent probably as much, maybe more time in a room with him than I did. What did you feel when when he would come in a room? Well, like we were talking about earlier, it's just like the boss is here. You know, like. If you're in a corporate job or whatever, and you people are kind of slouching at their desks or whatever, the boss walks in, like everybody straightens up, you know, make sure you are you doing something. If you're not doing something, you better start doing something. You don't want to just look like, you know, standing around. Mm. So, but yeah, he always said, just had that presence. It's Prince, no matter what. Yeah. Still, it's Prince walking in the room. Did that presence ever wear off for either of you? No. No. No way. No. Even up through the end when i decided to leave it was still there it was just that uh i was more emboldened to to take control of my situation why was that just your own sense of destiny and kind of who you were mm -hmm. better understanding of you i don't think it was that deep it was just that i had other things going mm. and that people don't like to hear it i mean nobody wants to hear it but prince isn't the biggest artist that i've worked with he was probably not he might be top five and that's hard to hear. But Madonna's bigger than Prince. Yeah. So Stevie Wonder's bigger than Prince. There's about like 30 people that just stopped listening to this <laughs> podcast. I, I, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm sorry, but at the end of the day, you can love the Yankees all you want. But if Toronto beats them three to two, Toronto wins. Yeah. So in our culture, competition is what makes people competition win yeah, yeah. you win because yeah. you're competing yeah and in prince's mind everything was a competition yes so, so you, you have to start counting record sales so part of your being emboldened was hey i got other gigs i got other possibilities here yeah but that that sounds kind of cal i, I it, it was i was i always stuck up for myself i never like sort of had that thing where i didn't speak my mind and that that, that goes back to just kind of not knowing that i couldn't 
Yeah. And just Cause, say, Because well, Michael Bland taught you well. Kind of, yeah. Right? Like, I mean, so so let's go back to the Michael Bland deal. So he sees you as a as a guitar tech. He's watching you. He's like, I like Scotty's work ethic. Yep. Scotty's doing some things. And he's young at this point. You're young at this point. Right. He brings you on. Like, what does a day in the life of a drum tech for Michael B. in 1989 look like? It was busy. Because he was playing, he was doing studio sessions, he was working at Paisley Park, and he was doing clubs at night. So, who was he doing studio sessions for? Uh, Johnny Lang, at, off and on, Prince, all the time. We'd get called out and have to, if if uh, an, an on-staff Paisley Park member didn't do it, I would set up drums. Um, there was all sorts of stuff happening with him. And any time I showed up at Paisley Park, I wasn't on the payroll of Paisley Park. So I was huh. sort of protected because I was Michael's guy. And Prince never messed with musicians who were better at their instrument than he was. And Michael Bland was better at his instrument than yes, he was. He is. Yeah, Michael Bland's a better... I don't think it's a stretch to say Michael Bland's a better drummer than Prince. Um, but he's different. You know, at that level, they become different, not really better. Yeah. Um, you know, talent plateaus, kind of. And then you just get, like, who you prefer. Um, but Mike Michael is a supremely talented drummer um with a great attitude and and he would really attack he just he was always about attacking things especially at the clubs and it wasn't like prince was playing shows and michael was coming to see him michael was playing shows and prince was coming to see michael right so that's different right the psychology is different prince wouldn't uh, prince couldn't didn't just always sit in when he wanted to like sometimes a band would just ride through and just blaze through a night and Prince didn't really have a choice of sitting in. There were times that they brought a guitar and a DI for Prince, and he wouldn't sit in because they were doing their thing. And he didn't fit in. There's a there's an attraction. I've said it before, but every this this won't land with a lot of people, but I still would I'm still gonna insist on it. Every relationship that I personally witnessed with Prince was a relationship of a male female romantic dynamic without the romanticism so if if you, every relationship had the repulsion phase had the makeup phase had the romance phase you could do no wrong phase the i'm going to stick up for you even if you're wrong phase the look at me don't look at me phase there was a there was a he had it was a it, every relationship seemed like it was a romantic relationship he um men he respected men uh who were musicians he showed outwardly he showed respect for uh, for males when they were musicians and women sort of universally he was known as a respectful person um i tend to think that oh i may have said some things in the netflix documentary that i <laughs> it would be interesting when they come out because I don't really remember saying him um, because it was just a very casual conversation. But he he had a res he certainly had um, respect a, a, a healthy respect for for females for women, and he also told me that he used women because they t did what he told them to do. Hmm. And that made me when he said that, and that was January twentieth. 2016 oh. the night before the the piano show scotty you know why i use so many female engineers because they did what i told them to do now that may be somebody just reinventing their idea of their what, history their history or he may have been very specifically truthful 
So is that, again, is that a somebody who empowers people and gives opportunity or is that a misogynist? I don't know and I'm really not here to judge that. But that was said to me specifically. So I kind of even remember hearing that and going, oh, I could have maybe not had not heard that. I <laughs> yeah, just yeah. find that hearing yeah. that. So, so flashing back to mm-hmm. all things 89, 90 and Paisley Park, do you remember... So you remember your first time seeing Prince. It's mm-hmm. at the fine line. You yep. turn the corner, and here he is. Do you remember your first time out at Paisley? Not specifically, but um, Michael starts showing up there and playing in a band um, with Margaret Cox huh. and called MC Flash. And they started rehearsing out there. And there was a drum tech at Paisley Park, but I came out there as Michael's guy again. And, that's, and Michael's so big and would break so many things, I had to be kind of right. I had to always be kind of behind him and on stage with him. And so at one point Prince was playing drums and he just kind of turned and looked at me with those, that side eye thing, because I was sort of just behind him watching him. Right. Um, and then it was that day that he said to Michael afterward at some point later, Michael came up to me and said, Hey man, he was asking about you. He was like, is your guy cool? And I said, yeah, he's totally cool. He was like, well, maybe he should go on the road with us. And it was simple as that. So it's just sort of like, he, you're part of the club. You're cool. You can be in our, you can be in our club. He vouched for you. <laughs> yeah, well, he did. He can let down the, let down the rope ladder up to the treehouse. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're in the club. Yeah, you got the secret the code. So do you remember, so your first time at Paisley Park? No, you're, you're, it's no, like No, it was blur. an MC flash rehearsal. Yeah. That I set up and was sitting behind Michael. And then. Your first time seeing Prince, like, do you remember that, or are you just working? Like, hey, I'm sitting behind Michael's drum kit, making it happen. So I'm there's here no like and... first concert. No, so I guess that's where I'm going. No, it, they were show they were shows at uh, at um, Glam Slam. MC Flash used to play every Wednesday night at Glam Slam. Every Wednesday. Yeah. Tell me about tell me about Glam Slam. That's good. From, from your I'm from glad your you perspective. asked that because people... and we talked. So we got we got one time Bill. We're just going to promote our own episodes here. And and Bill used to show up at Glam Slam. Number one Bill. Number one Bill. And he would show up. And Bill seen Prince perform like three hundred plus times. Show up at Glam Slam and like Wednesday, Thursday, whatever day things were happening, mm-hmm. he was there watching music and Prince would perform yeah so you're doing wednesday night gigs talk about glam slam in the early 90s and i mean one like maybe we should just like lay the context what is glam slam in the early 90s where is it it what is it place to be it was downtown it was on like fifth avenue right fifth or sixth sixth fifth yeah no fifth Fifth avenue fifth avenue fifth and first and um that was the place to be because um, and three, blo- three blocks from First Avenue. Yeah, just and, to give a, our listeners yeah, contextual. A, yeah, yeah, it was around. It was down the street from First Avenue Target Center, and um, and what Margaret did. MC Flash did Margaret Cox. So MC Flash did Wednesday nights because Bunkers was Monday and Tuesday. Huh. So she would go do Wednesday nights, and they would play covers and a few originals, a few songs that Prince had written specifically for Margaret. Um, and, uh, that was cool because then I was sort of, I was still being paid by Michael, but I could take some dictation from Prince. Like they would do a sound check and then Prince say, um, Scotty, you think this snare could come up a bit? I was like, cool. Yeah. I'll check with Michael. Yeah. Make sure you (laughs) check with him. So it was sort of a, it was a weird permissive thing. Like he was asking my opinion and then he would say, but check with Michael. 
So it was this, I was being worked into, that was maybe like a romantic phase in a weird, <laughs> Yeah, Yeah, no, I get that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, it was like, and then he, I felt like, oh, he values my assessment of that. And he knew I kept the drums pristine and I really knew Michael's setup. And so it sort of, um, uh, I, it was, it was, it was a, it was a real special place to be because there was a lot of smoke and IntelliBeams flashing yeah. everywhere. It was like a disco and it was always fun to do that. And then you would go from a disco right into live music and then right back into disco. It was, and t- the, the multiple layer, the two layer thing, and people could look down and it was very much like the movie. I mean, he, he basically was creating the movie. He created his own version of First Avenue. And I think he thought that he was going to cultivate bands there that were going to be good enough to compete with him. I think he was cultivating, grooming Margaret's band to beat his version of the time, but in real life. What happened? He lost interest in, in the comp, in, in playing. He didn't want to just, he wanted it to be a big special event when he played there instead of just weekly. Right. You know, and so were you see so MC would play would would Prince come on after them would he no. do cuz he was doing gigs there right they were relatively frequently right yeah but they were kind of sporadic and they weren't on a schedule so he everyone would go there thinking he would come in and he would sit in that you know like king's box or whatever yeah. like that 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 box looking over the thing and is he showing up is Kim Basinger coming you know it was like there was a lot of questions around and, that. I mean would Kim Basinger show up um no. I mean, people would show up. People though. would show up, and sometimes and he Prince show had up. like a certain aura about him around. Yeah, like hey, but f- and but for Minneapolis too, it was like you know, slice of Hollywood. Right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and like, then and that, that was sort of in the Carmen Electra phase. Okay, so we moved on, and so um, um, it was just another outlet. You know, like I, I mentioned before, that in old, oldie timey England, and <laughs> the kings would play each other in chess yep. and they would play with real people on a field and they would say knight four to rook two or whatever and the thing would go and actually they have people standing on the chessboard. that's weird <laughs> but that's what prince was doing he was using musicians like he was creating bands and he was like moving chess pieces and it was really kind of beautiful and it was fun to be part of it and I was learning a ton. That's what it was happening for me personally. I was learning about sound and learning Prince's theories. And I used to sort of memorize instantly his theories like Rain Man. I used to sort of go, Ooh, don't forget that. So give us, give us a couple of examples of like Rain Man theories that you took away from your glam slam era Mm. with Prince doing his thing. Purple Rain Man. Purple Rain Man theories. (laughs) I would. um, That's why I love having Dudley here. He was having, uh, he, he once said that he wrote, jerk out for the time at just after he had gotten done hearing brick house and then he went Shh. he told me he said i wrote jerk out right after i listened to um brick house and he went Shh. like don't tell anyone that was my secret basically like he was copying that song and i didn't really hear the similarity at first and i don't know if i would have to think about both those songs to hear if they're but he oh was, it's there um uh yeah i guess you're right it's there i mean there's sort of a uh but he 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 was a he was sort of somebody that i think because he didn't read music um that gave him an it gave him an edge in a way because he didn't understand the rules of music and like i I know plenty of musicians that play berkeley grads and they'll they'll go "Mm, that really doesn't work there 
and you go, yeah, it does. I want you to play that. You know, and Prince was definitely that way. He would play some funky, weird chords, and they sort of graded you. They sort of made you feel agitated, and that was his intent. Where hmm. somebody who's more schooled would not do that because theoretically it doesn't work. They can't think outside of that box. That's correct. So there aren't any yeah. rules at Paisley Park. So good transition. So you're you're doing the gigs out at Glam Slam. You're pl- you're you're all things guitar tech with Michael B. Drum tech. Drum tech, sorry. Do you do, because like, I mean, Prince is doing after parties. He's doing things at Paisley too, right? Yeah. How does that translate? How does it go from Glam Slam to Paisley and then Paisley back to Glam Slam? What does that look like in the early 90s? It was, um, it was, there was uh, a lot of preparation. It looked sort of ragtag, but we had kits ready and every, I always had a kit in my car. In my car, Never I know. always had a drum kit in my car. In my, I had a station Why? wagon. Why did you have a drum kit in your car? Because um, it would things would happen. Like you just have to show up, or we would. Um, Michael would say, "Hey man, you know, we got to record the white kit," and we just talked about it like the white kit, the gold kit, the black kit. Bring my black sonar kit. Okay, I have to go to Michael's house <laughs> in like Saint liter- Paul, literally his house, and swap out in the garage the kits, and you know, because Michael knew this kind of sound he needed for a song that Prince has been thinking about. So it was just very busy. I, I remember just being busy all the time. And I wasn't really, I wasn't on the payroll really. So when Michael said, you should just come on the road. And because uh, they had a tour going, what was it? The Act One? It was probably Act One, yeah. And uh, the the we went on the road and I had already had my foundational relationship and working relationship with Michael. I didn't have to do anything different. I was just responsible for drums. And nobody, there were other technicians there that didn't have their poop in a group and sound engineers and lighting engineers. So we were, I, I think we were, some, we were in Europe and it, we were a half dozen shows in and it was not going well. And, um, and I remember... Uh, this was either what 90, so this is, I don't know when it was 91, 92, 93, maybe. I don't know. It was at some point we were in Europe and Prince called a meeting of all the, the only people he didn't have at the meeting were the band technicians, everyone else, sound, lighting, tour management. Um, uh, uh, I remember they were, the, um, uh, wardrobe was there. Like all these people were out in the seats and Prince was standing and they were just sitting in the chairs in the audience. And Prince said, y'all need to know your jobs. And you need to know other people's jobs too. Because anybody can be replaced. So he said, y'all know, see, I wasn't at the meeting. He said, y'all know Scotty. He can't play a lick on drums, but he knows what Michael likes. And he's back there behind Michael air drumming the whole show. He knows it like like he's playing it. (laughs) And he said, if they come up with cloning... I'm going to clone Scotty and me and all four of us will run the show and fire y'all. y'all. <laughs> and all I know is that when, when, when the band came back to the stage and I walked up on stage, I think Tommy Barbara, Tommy Elm was the first one I ran across or maybe Levi or Sonny. And they said, Oh man, he just paid you a big compliment, man. And I was like, what are you talking about? Pressure. My, Michael was like, man, he likes you, man. And I was like, what? I don't know what you're talking about. And they, I learned the story later. And I thought, well, that was cool. He That's was hilarious. into people who were into it. Right, and if you didn't look like you were into it, like when you watch Dustin DJ, he's not not into it. 
Oh, he's into it. He's into it. And Prince wanted anybody who was into it, no matter what the price. And that's why he didn't tell you if you were going to be paid or not for the after shows. Really? We would, we would do so after you could, shows. You could, get, you could not get paid we for got, the after shows? We got stiffed more than we got paid. What, what's up with that? I didn't know this at all. This is this is he he would purple would, highs insights right here. Yeah, People, for sure. The, 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 he, they would just say we're doing an after show tonight, um, and we would go and I would quick set up the drum kit and then sit back. And I don't even think we brought a pad back then. We might have, but I don't really remember in the early nineties. For sure, when I was mixing two thousand to two thousand five, anything we always brought a pad so John or whomever had claps. And we could kind of make it sound more like the show. But we never knew if we were going to be paid. I didn't get paid for any after parties. I mean, like, it was just, I was just, that was just, I, assumed. I was just like, it was assumed. a day rate. Yeah, it's yeah. a day rate. It's you know, your, that's it's I'm part getting paid your, for the day. You're getting, you're, you're getting working, you're working 12 after, hours, you're working 16 hours. You're, just, you're there. If, if you're, you went, if you got down to the legality of it, <clears> it does fall under a work for hire provision. So if you're under work for hire, and even though I never signed a contract with him, it could get down to a verbal contract. I don't think I've ever, I never signed anything ever with Prince. You never signed one contract no. with Prince? No. And you didn't have them. I still don't sign. Well, I signed Was it just in, like a bump agreement I, or? Yeah, not even a bump agreement. You just kind of <laughs> went, oh, we're going out again. And and it, but you would get paid. Yeah. But not for the after shows. Uh, the after shows you never knew. So and how so did that work? We would Tell finish an that. after, so we would do an after show. Prince never took any money for after shows himself. What? No, and what it was was more often than not. I I think probably a hundred percent of the time, but I I'm not I don't know for sure. But he would take Prince would get the door, the bar would get the F and B. Yeah, I'd get a hundred percent of the door. Yep, and the and the bar would get food and beverage. So any drinks, any food, any of that went to the bar, and then they would be so excited to have Prince, they would give the hundred percent of the door. So tell me about the after show life. You kind of mentioned it earlier. It's got its own. Yeah. vibe you got your oh, yeah. show which is stadium it's tight we've rehearsed this one million times yes compare and contrast that with the after show it's i i imagine that it, as a fan it would be hard to hear that the after shows were more fun because the amount of people that went to them was so minuscule compared to who went to the main show the main show was still great i'm not taking anything away from it but it was restrained it was confined you had to know the lighting engineer you as a performer, Prince had to go, well, the lighting engineer doesn't know this song. I know they don't. They're already late and wrong in most of their lighting cues. <laughs> so I'm not going to take it outside, go really outside and go into something. I got to keep it confined. It's got to be 120 minutes or less, and it has to be this and that. Probably Prince was aware. He was acutely aware of all these things. He even knew that a dat recorded 120 minutes. Because as I would record the show, and the later would become the... Live, uh, one Night Alone Live, he knew, he's like, do you have two dad recorders? I was like, yeah, man, I, they're Y cable together so I can overlap them and be like, cool. You don't ask, do you think Madonna asked her sound guy that? <laughs> so he knew that a dad can only record two hours so he wanted to make sure that I was recording over recording. It. Yep, so that we could record up to four hours and then go back and forth between. So he was super aware. That guy was, he had an awareness quotient that was that was unparalleled so let's talk on the after show sound so what how did you know an after show was going to happen did you know an after show was going to happen at sound check they would sound they would, check of of the the, the big show the, the big show, show. Yeah. so and talk to me about how you find out 
I find out by um, somebody would get in Prince's ear probably before soundcheck and say, yeah, we're in Nashville or we're in, you know, wherever, Cheyenne, Wyoming. It doesn't matter. It, it would be, we got a club because they would actively be looking for clubs. And they would tell Prince. And so Prince, we would do the sound check. And a lot of times we'd do a first sound check, right, Dustin? And then we'd do a second sound mm-hmm. check for the fans. Mm-hmm. Then the MPG Music Club days, yeah. Yeah. And so we, but at the end of that first sound check, um, he would say, y'all want to jam tonight? Like that meant, do you want to play later? And nobody was the, was nobody that, said what, no. Was that nobody, an actual question? Or? Yeah. Well, it was assumed and no one ever, I never heard anyone say, I don't really, I don't feel like playing tonight after the show. <laughs> and he always, what I really, um, I'm super proud or I'm, uh, I'm proud that he would always ask me. He always, I wish I had recorded them because every time he go, you don't, you don't want to jam tonight? And they would always go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Scotty, you want to jam tonight? Every time. And I would go, yeah, man. Scotty, like, you want to jam tonight? And so... I mean, that, that was that was actually... Every time he played, uh, Scotty, you want to jam tonight? When he... When, yeah, before sound check. Uh, yeah. be, be, excuse me, before after shows? Yep. All the time. Y'all want to jam tonight? And then we go, Scotty, y'all want to jam? You want to jam tonight? I go, yep. And not because well, I knew money was in it. It was... As a matter of fact, a lot of times we were just tired, right, Dustin? Oh, of course. Yeah, you been a full or a lot of times too you'd be rolling in on the bus sleeping on the bus coming in straight to the arena yeah setting up sound checking eating yep. getting ready for the show and then doing sort of a sound check that was kind of a show yeah there's some of the sound checks would go for an hour hour and a half sometimes and then we'd do a two and a half hour show and <clears> then we'd know that i wouldn't tear down anything i'd grab my bag and look at my you know in, the technician and go i gotta go and then I, we'd get in a cab or a car or whatever and get driven over to this club super smoky we'd get inside there that had a vibe already a lot of times i'd already be there spinning yeah, he'd and be, then all of a sudden you know all the band and the gear starts start rolling up to the stage and, and they would just sort of show up i usually showed up after dustin he would already be spinning i would get there and i, I already could knew, i already knew it was him this is the early 2000s yeah and i would walk in and i would know it dustin could, i would know that it was Dustin because of what he was playing so then i'd come in and i'd see the only channels to me that were live that I couldn't mess with were his DJ channels. They would say DJ, and he would be playing already. And then I would have to quickly, quietly, and Prince didn't want any noise in the PA. I'd have to just, with headphones, check all the instruments, EQ them already, and then start recording before oh, they would take the stage. And I remember one city in particular, he showed up before the band and before the text. I don't even know if you were on the show. He was, it was... It was just kind of quiet. Mm. And I got there and he was already at front of house drinking a a 7-Up. And I went, hey, man, what's up? And I was like feverishly trying to get the soundboard ready. And he goes, you got my keys up? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, I'm going up. And I went, shit. (laughs) And so I started recording, not knowing if I was even going to get the right levels. I started recording the DAT recorder, digital audio tape recorder. And Prince goes up and I went, shit, there's the the mic. And he started just playing a clav. Boom, ding, bang, it, bang, and then i just and as he starts talking i'm getting his levels and i did it all john shows up it was really beautiful it was like watching art happen i don't mean to be dramatic but that's exactly what it was you're watching the painting happen john shows up his tech is putting up his drums and john was helping and throwing symbols on and spinning the top and Rhonda starts playing you know it was all happening real time everybody and then, just sees this whole thing be built right in front of him and and it's like you and then john just went 
do, and it ended up being like musicology, the song musicology. So nice. he played like a 20 minute intro. So why do you think Prince does after shows? I mean, he, nobody else is doing after shows. No. So where did he get this idea from? Um, that I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't have the sensibility to, I, I don't have an informed, I wouldn't want to hazard a guess. He, he just loved playing. Yeah. And he didn't care what he made. And he didn't make money because a lot of times he would, I don't know what they did with the money when they didn't pay anyone. He probably did end up with the money. But, <laughs> just, just, but just petty cash. Petty cash. <laughs> a new pair of, a new zipper for one of his boots. I don't know. But he would, otherwise, when we did get paid, he would tell whoever was his person at the time, he, they would get, they would settle with the club. And then he would tell, tell them, split it between the, crew the band crew and scotty and the monitor guy or he would say pay the band and scotty or pay the band and that's all so he would say who got paid and who didn't and one night at the end of a tour i i think the last show was dallas i'm pretty sure it was i could be wrong but we got done with the tour the last show of the tour he did an after show i don't think it was dallas He, he he finished the after show and his guy, Trevor, came up to me and said, here you go, motherfucker. <laughs> and I said, what? And he said, he said, give it all to Scotty. Nice. And I said, what? And he said, I was like, holy shit. And he hands me. It's a, like a tip. It was a giant uh, two and a half inches of three inches of cash. And I stuffed it in my pockets and I pulled my shirt down like really wide and pulled it out. And I got on the van and I didn't know. If anybody else had been paid or whatever, I get in the van and the band and crew were on that van. They were like, fuck this man. This is the last show of the tour. We didn't get shit. And I was like, yeah, that motherfucker. We didn't get shit from that motherfucker. Fuck, fuck him, man. And I was, meanwhile, I could barely walk because I was walking like, so a, like a cowboy. So what was it about the after shows that you liked? What was it about the the feel, the vibe? I mean, obviously it wasn't the money. I mean, we. I was happy you couldn't walk that one night but some nights you got stiff so yeah you know so like it all equilibrium uh, because it was you were watching real it was being a part of something that um was less that was uninhibited that was completely you didn't know what was going to happen yeah and and it was it was smoky and it was gross and some of the sometimes it was it was just sometimes it wasn't fun and sometimes we were just mad to be there or we knew already we weren't going to get paid. There was, but you were part of something that was really, at least I had that perspective. Like it was being, I don't know. It was like this weird boot camp that lasted years. Yeah. And but, Paisley Park kind of like the concerts out there. Yeah. That's where I was going to go. It like, like, felt like after shows, you yeah, know, when you, mm. when you were before we get to kind of the two thousands and all that, like, did you do gigs at Paisley Park? Because, like, I mean, this podcast is about, like, the fans of Paisley Park. Mm-hmm. We talked about Bill Winsell, right? 300 shows. Saw a bunch of shows at Glam Slam. Saw a bunch of shows at Paisley Park. A couple of shows at Target Center, right? Yeah. Like, so, like, for the gigs at Paisley Park, were you part of those? I, mean, I, was, I was a part of a ton of them, but uh, I would have to actually um, go on some website and sort of find exactly what I was a part of. Because right. yeah. remember, I'm a touring engineer at this point, and I had my own career going. So um, unlike some musicians, it wasn't the only thing that I had going. Right. 
Yeah. I'm trying to be careful no, on how I say that. That's fair. So I would leave and go do other tours with big artists. And, um, and then I would come back. And again, part of my theory of him, of every relationship in his life being of a room, having the color of a romantic relationship, there was the thing about being attracted and repelled, you know, and, and said no to, and then the attraction. And uh, one time there was something that he said, I recollect him saying, did my money pay for that? And I said, no, so-and-so's money paid for that. <laughs> And it was it was a little bit of competition. I think he was a he was super competitive, but he didn't get challenged a lot. He didn't get challenged by other musicians. He sort of set the tone in the movie. I don't know who wrote the movie, but he sort of set the tone in the movie of competition. It was kind of a love story with music in it, and it was also a movie about competition. Right. And but he always tried to he did try and create that competition in his own career, but it never really worked. Like he, he could out, he would just shift into a different gear if he felt threatened. He had so many gears. He would just, I never, I don't think I ever topped out his, I don't think I ever saw him work as hard as he could to have to beat someone. And not because they were enthralled, be, just because people couldn't keep up with his sort of, that sort of magnanimous energy. He couldn't really contain that. People needed to sleep. Yeah, that, yeah, that too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, just people needed to sleep, right? Like, was his drive what they say it was? Oh, for sure. After every show, he watched every show. Right after every show, he watched every show. And the tours that we didn't film on camera, like film and make a you know, DVD of it, I was happy for that. <laughs> because, and then when he did start making DVDs, um, then it got frustrating because uh, I would get calls in the middle of the night and like, can you turn this up on this song? And I would go, oh, man, yeah. Jesus. And I would go, sure. And it would be in the middle of the night on a bus traveling. And I would have to go, and I wouldn't talk to him. Like he would tell Zachary or Trevor or something. He would tell one of his guys, you know, tell Scotty to turn up the bass a little bit on, on uh, Sexy Dancer. And I go, okay, cool, man. How do you think that that, work ethic his wanting or willingness to just watch every show dial in every detail how do you think that that informed his sensibilities mm. like how do you think that that influenced him over time that's a good question um because he was sort of tireless in his effort he i don't i just think he never peaked he just kept i mean he kept peaking he kept hitting the peak of his performance. He kept setting new little records, new little lap times that were a little better than the one before. And he... Incrementally. Yeah. He just kept working on it. And uh, and and um, he was soft at times. I mean, I... I what does that mean? Yeah, the, the 2004 Musicology Tour. I'll be kind and contrast it. If I believe shit sandwiches are best if you i like shit sandwiches you give a compliment then you tell somebody yeah, yeah, I get it. i'm in management i understand 2002 he worked super hard he loved the one night alone tour or what was it called yeah yeah one night alone. <clears throat> one night alone. and it was really also too just like bare bones independent like doing it all on his own yeah. like basically taking the stage of paisley park and the 
That's a great the, way of saying it, yes. the, the the little uh, fake flame lights or whatever, yeah. and be like, the like I remember, yeah, the bubbles. I remember Takumi being like, "We're bringing this on the road. Like, I got to figure yeah. out how to package this up and move this around." You know, so yeah. that was really just super. The fan club in the front, <clears throat> yeah, all that stuff. He worked really hard. I'll give it to Prince. He worked harder than I'd ever seen him work. Was in two thousand two on that tour. That's why I love that tour so much because we we're he really leaned in and he cared about every bar of every song in 2004 i personally think 2004 you'll have to check me fact check me on the fly about these dates but alex han came out with a book yeah and i don't i don't know the year that he came out with it but i think that 2004 musicology tour was a response to that book really yep why what was it wait what was the book it was i I don't it was like called the rise and fall of prince yeah, and he gets into the details of all kinds of yep. stuff, right? And he's talking '96, and but think about it—the rise and fall of Prince. So Prince fall. was like, "Oh yeah," and he had the biggest tour of the year. It's called he, Possessed: The yep. Rise and Fall of Prince. What year? It had to be around '03 or something. Um, 2003. You're right. Yeah. Okay, ding, Man, that ding, was ding, a guess. So you think that he's coming back? I know from he was this. coming back from that. It's so interesting. So again, competition is the theme. Why do you think Prince, I mean, this is, I mean, kind of the Prince philosophy and the undergirdings of who he is. Why do you think he's so concerned on the competition front? I don't know. You would have to, I'm not qualified to answer that. I th- you'd have to dig into his childhood and you'd have to dig into places that I don't know of what I speak. So I, but it has to do with competition for sure. He was super competitive really competitive how much do you think that drove him like i mean obviously you're telling me he's super competitive so do you think that how does that drive his behavior well yeah no one could mess with him really musically why not um because he just he he never had to use all of, of his facility he never had to reach in that far he had enough to beat almost every anyone i mean okay didn't he do something with Maite and they like there was something where people danced on stage? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, the MPG dance company. Yeah. Okay, I, I know nothing about it. I just vaguely and like remember that. And you're telling me more, as much as I've ever known. <clears throat> he didn't write the score for that hmm. clearly, right? Because it was like classical sort of sounding stuff. Oh, he, that could have been the. Um, so somebody else scored it. Kama right? Sutra. No, it no. was. Uh, oh, shit, Wasn't it his remember. music though? Yeah, that and then was somebody the, danced. Oh, fucking. So let's just Go say ahead. this. He wasn't qualified to write classical stuff. He wasn't qualified to write orchestral stuff. So he didn't. He was really good at not doing what he didn't do well. He was, he, I've said in some interview, I said he never picked up a, I made, I said trumpet or sax yep. because he d- didn't play them. So you, so the orchestral, orchestra stuff, like, someone else is just coming in and doing is yep. they giving him direction do you sure. think or they were listening to what he said and, and using right. those as notes but he couldn't tell you c minor nine at 11 go right. to b flat six then you go to c seven so he just they maybe did something so he, he would use words to describe it. how he felt and how it should be and he was right i mean he had a great uh, great feelings about that but <clears throat> he never scored his stuff that claire fisher did claire fisher scored that stuff yeah, he would send the tapes to L.A. They would come back, and they would. He would go, "Sweet, that sounds great. I love it." But he was smart enough to know um, 
into whose hands he should put those things. He never messed with you, as I said, if you were better at what you did than what he than he was. So he didn't really mess with Michael Bland. Because, because he knew Michael could play. Yeah. And um and so, did he mess with me with sound? Sure. I mean he we he would like we I would even physically like try and show like you all right, that's enough. Like and like, face him and like put my hands behind my head like almost like, yeah and just like try and give him visuals like yeah that's enough like you're doing this all on the mic it's really not fun it's been 40 minutes we're here in japan we got to get moving you you can keep going but it's you're wasting everyone's time and it sounds and, great <laughs> yeah but there's also a power dynamic that's at play yeah for sure he was always the most powerful one in any room he was ever in he made sure of that. And if he didn't, he already, he won most people over just by being in the room. But then other people, like, he wouldn't mess with people that really could mess with him. And I don't know who that is, but, I mean, Stevie, he made friends with Stevie because Stevie's just made of music. Yeah. Because, I mean, he's got mad skills. Miles, I saw his interaction with Miles uh, Davis backstage at, at Glamps. I happened to be in that hallway. Talk to me about that. Man, that was cool. That was a cool moment. Um, he, it was Prince and Michael and one or two other like people around him, but it was Prince and Michael Bland and Miles Davis in the back hallway after um, men who eat out had sound checked already men who eat out opened for Miles Davis. And he didn't have Margaret open because men who eat out was a serious band. Those four or five people were really, really good. Billy Franzi, Doug Nelson, Steve Cherowan, Michael Bland. I think it was those four and they just crushed. Wait, what was the name of the band? Men who eat out. Okay. They were a response to a band in the eighties in Minneapolis called Women Who Cook. <laughs> which See, was, this, this is like a history lesson yeah, right here. Women Who Cook. So these guys went, hey, I got the name for a band. Men Who Eat Out. <laughs> and they played every Sunday night at the Whiskey Junction, and then Bunkers would be Monday and Tuesday. So we had a three-day week of work, you know, as a drum tech I did. Well, and, and then you had Wednesday at Glamsland. And Wednesday at Glamsland eventually. Just grinding. And so, um, so that's four nights a week of hearing... And just like it was a lot of music, right? And then I joined that. So, um, they they got down with sound check, and Miles Davis wanted to meet Michael, and Prince introduced those two. I, I believe Michael can fact check me, maybe not on the fly. He's not listening, but but anyway, Michael Miles Davis said to Michael, "Hey man, how you make those drums so fucking loud? How you make them so loud, man?" And Michael was really. Miles is a hero. He's like, oh, man, man, you know, I'm just doing my thing. Whatever he said to him, sort of. I mean, it's Miles Davis asking right. you how to make him so loud. I'm just hitting it. I'm just hitting the I, snare. <laughs> I remember another night where George Clinton was backstage in the exact same area. I was talking with Michael. And uh, Michael was like, man, you're going to do that song in B-flat? Or something like, you know, you're going to do it in B-flat like you rehearsed it or something like that. And George Clinton's like, what? You know the key? And Michael's like, yeah, I got perfect pitch. And I saw this beautiful childlike laugh from George Clinton. He laughed like a little kid. Ah, 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 a drummer with perfect pitch. Ain't that a motherfucking bitch? <laughs> drummer with perfect pitch. Ah, 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 ah. Um, there are a lot of moments like that. And being around Prince, I think, created a bunch of moments. You saw how much he was revered by people. And we sort of, I, it was sort of lost on me a little bit because he was just sort of a colleague. You know, we were working together to get a goal done. It's, clear to me now it takes time to yeah. for perspective to set in and i wasn't happy with him when i left him yeah. and i was upset and and i needed to be paid and i eventually got paid from the bank and then time went on and then i sort of went through a 
grieving, you know, months and months later, and then um, ultimately end up where I probably should be, which is in totally reverential to my time there and um, regarded him as being a total natural. He was 100% natural at music. It was like, I might be repeating myself, but any wife or woman in his relate in his life was only a mistress because music yes music was the number one for sure which makes sense whether it was listening to whether it was listening to dustin dj or him playing a show it was music and he wanted to be enveloped in music and he didn't want too much woofers as he would call them and he wanted to he had his preferences and he didn't always know how to say it and too much woofer you know, and I could yeah. go, okay, he means this, and sort of turn his descriptions into moves on the soundboard that made it better. And you were able to help him yep. manage that. Yeah. You know, one, I was just looking my Facebook feed the other day, just had a deal with Lenny Kravitz out at Paisley Park in 1993. And you got Sonny Thompson singing songs, and you got Lenny Kravitz just jamming. Mm-hmm. Any recollection of that? Almost none. I was for sure there. <laughs> you were for sure there. I mean, yep. it was like like Kirk's like right in the front of the deal. And it's like, ah, it's like a two and a half minute clip. And I'm thinking to myself, this, I shit, mean, this I, shit happened. I, I, that, that's how I look I at vague, it. Like, like this I, is like crazy. This this happened. Yeah, I vaguely, like, re- I mean, I recall that, of course. But it was it's vague and it's 20, 20 well, 30. 30. Jeez, 30. It's like 32 more yeah it's a long time ago but um uh the one i missed i think the one i wasn't there for was steve vi oh yeah yeah i didn't see that either that's steve like, and michael no, and no Sonny. so steve vi just and then we're gonna hit pause for a minute because <laughs> so steve vi what's crazy is we were there in 95 and steve vi played the state theater i think give or take and prince had opened up love for one another put in my quotations mm-hmm. put a ad in the city pages and it was just like tuesday paisley park nothing going on except six people um <laughs> you know because like that's what it was right and this was right when dustin and i started going out there and steve Vai uh had played the show and he came out and mm-hmm. like was literally just sitting in the entrance to go into paisley park and there's like literally shit half a dozen people that are out there and Steve Vai's got his cool glasses on. He's there. He's there. <laughs> and Aaron Leapins is kicking my ass out. Like that that is what I remember of the entire show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is this is over. And from what I understand, like Steve Vai actually didn't play with Prince. He played with Sonny and the NPG. I saw a little video. I saw a video of it years ago. Somebody videotaped it. Because it was yeah. on video. Yeah. And and from what I hear. And we'd have to talk to Michael about this, and we should. Uh, the sound that, that Steve Vai played was very uh, similar to Rock and Roll's Live and Lives in Minneapolis. Mm. Like, like that's supposedly like the guitar on Rock and Roll's Live and Lives in Minneapolis, very similar to like the Steve Vai mm. vibe. And, you know, essentially, you know, a couple months after the whole Steve Vai performance and then playing, or not performance, then playing together, like Prince releases that song, KDWB, et cetera, all within like this window. Yeah. But, the, but the Rock and Roll is Live was a direct 
response to Lenny yeah. Kravitz. Yeah, song rock and roll is dead. Yeah. So pull it full circle to yeah. all things Lenny Kravitz and all things competition <laughs> and all yeah, things <laughs> competition. See, that's what, good. What did that's he really say, good. What did he say about uh, bringing sexy back? Yeah. <laughs> uh, said, what did Prince say? He said something like something like I already. Or, what did he say? I already brought it, or it never left. Or yeah, it never left. Like that. Yeah, so classic. And then <laughs> Justin comes out there and does his gig, and you did that gig, right? Yeah, I with mixed, the revolution yeah, out of the Super Bowl. I, I didn't enjoy being there. Why not? Um, that was the first. Uh, no, maybe the, I was there once before that. I think I've done two gig, two shows there. Um, it's a different feel when he's not there. Oh yeah, yeah. smells different too. Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> smell like it does in here. Thankfully, you guys no. It know smells the like Paisley Park, right? It smells right like now. Paisley Park. Yeah, Garden of Eden. We're Close gonna, your eyes. We're gonna hit pause for a minute, and then we're gonna come back with uh, Scotty Baldwin. There's a YouTube channel called Charisma on Command. I'm writing that shit down. And the guy who, and just look up Charisma on Command Hot Ones, and he'll talk about the host of. The show Hot Ones? Yeah, the, I've never the wing, seen, I've, the wing eating show. thing. Yeah. I forgot. I don't even know the guy's name. But he, <clears throat> if you look up Charisma on Command Hot Ones, it'll say how to get anybody to tell you anything or whatever. It's about that guy. And he, he, is the, he has the best questions of any interviewer. And he does super deep research. And he knows how to ask questions. And all of his guests go, that's a really good question. Because that's not just... What was it like being a DJ for Prince? Because that's what most people do because they don't do any research. But this guy, as he's, they're eating wings, he's asking them. And then they, they're sort of in a broken down state because they're doing something weird. And then, yeah, and, like, like it's, it's the story. And it becomes conversation. The story. Yeah. And it becomes this thing where, and this guy asks great questions. I don't even know his name, but it's, it's pretty, pretty cool. To, but watching that little segment on the guy who has the show. The Charisma on Command is actually a really good YouTube channel. What are you reaching for, Mark? Yeah, 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 yeah. So we're back. <sighs> light another instant. Just want this place to smell like Paisley Park. What are you burning, Dustin? Oh, I got Havoc Machine. What did you get? West Coast? Oh, did I give you the wrong one? Here, we can trade it. No, no, I don't mind. Oh, no, I yeah. like creating Havoc. Havoc. <clears throat> Talking beer choices. Where'd you get the beer from, Dustin? Surly. Shout out Ben Quam. Shout out to uh, Ben Quam. Show Surly. sponsor Surly. <laughs> it so, would be nice to be to be sponsored by Surly. Yeah, you know, I mean, <laughs> Ben, where are we at? Well, they got me uh, June 9th playing outside of Surly, all Prince. Come yeah, hang out. <laughs> yeah, so Dustin's doing it. He did the uh, beer gigs last week, right? Wait, where is yeah. Surly again? Uh, Saint or no, Minneapolis, right by uh, kind of by the Minnesota. U. Yeah, yeah, I live I live uh, eight blocks from there. I will be there. Yeah. When is it? June ninth, Thursday, yeah. happy hour. Yeah, we should all hang out. It's early. It'll be fun. Yeah, I, can, I can stagger home, just not get hit on university. Yeah. I can make it across there. Uber. I can make it anywhere. Uber. So we're back at it, talking all things Prince. It's fun. Dustin, you having fun? Always. Scotty, you having fun? I'm having a good time. <laughs> good time. And so, now we're going to all have beer burps. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. So, you know, I was listening to an interview. This is kind of stepping back to step forward and get your perspective on all things. Prince's influence on the musicians around him, right? So, Jimmy Jam was doing interviews in, let's call it 16 sometime. And he was, it was the Red Bull interview. So, these are on YouTube, right? And... 
essentially like Jimmy Jam is talking about rehearsals with Prince. So he's breaking down his time with Prince and how Prince extended Jimmy Jam to be more, right? So essentially, I'm just going to read some of the verbatim stuff sure. from this interview and, and get kind of your perspective on it. And, and what I'm looking for is like, how did you see Prince do this when you were kind of working with him? So essentially, like Prince is asking Jimmy Jam, hey, Jimmy, what what are you playing, right? And Jimmy's like, hey, I'm doing this, blah, blah, blah. And, and he's asking Jimmy, what are you doing with your right hand, right? Like, Jimmy was doing something with his left hand. What are you doing with his right hand? And I'm not doing anything, Prince. I'm just, you know, playing the baseline chords. And he essentially says, you should be playing the chords Monty's playing. And he's Jimmy says, hey, Monty's already playing those chords, but you've got to play those chords. This is Prince's back to him because it's got to be better than the record Mm. so this is kind of the live sound better than the record so jimmy you're doing one thing but i need you to do this thing in addition and jimmy jam goes on to say and this thing and this thing and all of a sudden jimmy jam is tipping his hat and he's playing this and he's playing that and he's adding all these elements to the live sound because prince is saying hey it's got to be quote unquote better than the record yeah how did you see prince influence the musicians around him so that the sound was better than the record if when people look back at his at prince's career they will if they don't recognize now he's he was a he was the greatest live performer of his generation for sure i mean possibly of all time again that's a competitive thing for me to say Mm -hmm. but but he was right up there the the live stuff was better than the record um i've said it before 26 years i never heard him hit a flat note or a sharp note whether or not he was in front of a monitor or not i mean whether he was in front of a monitor or not he never hit it to me i'd never heard a note be sharp or flat when he sang it um cynthia johnson of of uh, lips incorporated funky town fame mm-hmm. uh her theory was that he signed a deal with it she's like nobody's that good <laughs> she told me years and years ago in the early night she's like nobody's that good his day is coming yeah. like he signed a deal it's he, there's nobody can be that good and uh you can look online and look up like youtube prince fails and you know he might be flat or sharp there or fall or slip or whatever i never saw it in all my time he was just he, he asked of other people, he asked of the musicians what he, ex, what he knew he could deliver himself. And so what he was, I think if you asked Jimmy, I, I don't know him very well. Uh, we briefly come across each other and, and um, he probably knows who I am by now, but um, in passing. But he, if you ask him, I think he would say that he, he, he want, Prince wanted things to be together and full and fat and powerful. But at the same time, he always respected uh, space and clarity in the live performance. Let me give you an example. Um, he has talked before about the space between the notes. Yep. It's a big thing to him. And he used to say to the band, at least the band in 2002, and not so much in, in at musicology band, but he said, come on, y'all, we got to respect our two, ex- two extra band members, Scotty and Silence. <laughs> like that's right. weird to say 
but cool. And yeah. what he was doing was he was kind of saying, we got to give Scotty some silence so that the reverbs can be heard. Right. And so he revered and respected silence in the absence of sound as much as he did sound. So um, I might be just be, this might be my ver- version of jazz, just kind of riffing here. No, I like it But though. what I'm, the theory I'm postulating is that he, sound is outward and silence could be viewed as nothing or inward. I think he viewed silence as an inwardness. There was the absence of sound was still music to him. So the space between the notes was very valuable. It, it's easier for him to ask Jimmy just to play the left-hand part and not possibly fuck up what Monty was playing. But what he was asking them to do together was to act as one part. So he was asking people to ask more of themselves than they thought they could deliver. Mm-hmm. And if you look at this, uh, I if you look at the secret of life, you ask people the secret to success. Mo- most of them say, um, "Under promise, over deliver." And when the real secret is over promise, over deliver. If you promise more than you can actually do, it makes you have to do more. And then if you over deliver what you've already over promised, you're really going to accelerate. Prince always over promised and always over de- over delivered. Always. So- so in your experience, how did he push his bands to do that? Because the energy that he brought to, on the one, oh, y'all don't even know. He'd go off the mic, y'all in trouble. And if he sensed that a crowd wasn't up to his energy level, he would just bullshit them into thinking that they were more excited than they were. And then they would get that excited. Yeah, they'd get into it. So he, Oh, y'all don't even know. So talk to me about all things rehearsal at paisley park right like i mean you're doing rehearsal you're getting ready for whatever tour act Mm -hmm. one one night alone like how how does prince bring it in the rehearsal you're in the sound stage he's got the band there he's got the set list how is he growing them up to to do that like is he is he is he bringing those cues hey i don't don't hear you i don't like is he hey seattle um um he well i just what i noticed about him and what i've tried to emulate that he did was that he was always in show mode he would dustin might even correct me if i'm wrong but he he was always playing like it was a show Right. I mean, he would often he wouldn't maybe do the dance moves fully, right, right, right. but he was always playing as if. Well, we and were that's playing what I, was, I that's what I was going to ask you too because I've seen you know a good amount of rehearsals, but definitely not as much as you. But I remember like being in a band and being like, "All right, we got to work on this part or figure this out," or you know. But it would with him, I've never seen that. It's always like he knew his parts, he knew what he was going to yeah. do. Like his solos were down. It wasn't like. Have, did you ever see that where he's like, "Hold on, stop. Let me figure this out. Let me re, you know, go through this key and make sure this no. is how I want it." You know? No. Yeah. He always knew his stuff. He always knew it, and he knew your part. And he would show you. And sometimes he would show you in kind, and other times he would um, be a little more deliberate. And sometimes he would do it to make you embarrassed that he was showing you. You know, right. like he had different do levels. I need to, do so I need to play this for you? Yeah. <laughs> so when I'm in the sound stage at Paisley Park mm-hmm. and I'm watching a rehearsal and I'm doing... Mostly the NPG room, but yeah. yeah. Oh, the, so the are, most, are most of them in the back room? Yeah. Once that became a club and a room and got carpeting, it that was the place. Really? Yeah. Yeah. 
I didn't realize that. So yeah, but I think also lo- then all the stuff set up for the after party. Yep. Or he could no. just it was so would it roll from tonight. so would it roll from like if I'm at Paisley Park in 2002, I'm rolling from. Hey, we're rehearsing to I got people here on a Friday night. Yep. What time would her rehearsals like if you're? Um, it's like everybody show up on when at they noon. Start, they would show it. I would show up at uh, ten. They would start around noon. I remember him going noon to six. A lot of that was noon to six, mm-hmm. and we did have a dinner break in there. And he, is is he in there from noon to six, or is that uh, just the band playing? Sometimes I would come there. I would kind of when I would come there, and he would already be on stage. I would always curse myself in some way. I kept showing up earlier until I was for sure earlier than him. <laughs> <laughs> and then I would that had to be yep. my new. Show up time. Yeah, your new your yeah. new gig time. I don't remember him. Scotty's sleeping he, under the board. He, and he hear just hears a heel, and he just pops up. He he wouldn't like he. I don't remember him being there at nine a.m. or something like that. Just sort of. Wasn't. That's ridiculous. And so nine a.m. But, but He's I a used, rock star. I used to show up at ten, and just to make sure I was there right. for a noon start, and I would walk up back and forth. This is before I could run a soundboard with an iPad. I had to run back and forth and snap on mics to make sure they're on and walk yep. back and then walk back up. And Would you have to check all that? Oh, yeah. I'd check it okay. every day. Because if it didn't work... You would hear about it. Well, it was less out of fear and more out of pride. Just yep. like, I'm ready yeah. and I'm ready to record. This is your job. And I would... It's show it ready. Might be, it might be kind of... I mean, I've never talked about this. It might be a little embarrassing but for me. I don't, I'm not sure yet. I haven't said it. But I used to practice almost like a choreographed how I would start a recording. Really? Yeah. So tell me about that. Because the recording deck was a little bit farther than I can reach it from the sound desk. So I would say, okay, if he asks to record, I'll lean over like this. Would he sometimes not ask you to record? Oh, yeah. I mean, most of the time I wasn't recording. So what's the difference between, hey, I'm recording and, hey, I'm not recording? One show in 2002. What does that mean? We were, the band was jamming. Dustin was there. The band was jamming. And at some point, he went on the one, <clears throat> and, the man, and he goes, oh, Scotty, I hope you recorded that. Oh, shit. And I went, no. Yeah. And then he goes, oh, you're fired. And I got a bee in my bonnet, and I pulled the master fader down. I marched right up to the stage. I knew if I didn't nip it in the bud right away. I know it sounds like I'm. this is exactly how it happened. I r- ran up the center aisle. I jumped up on the lip of the stage. I walked over. It was a theater tour. I walked over to him, and I said, Hey, listen, man, if you want me to record, just say Scotty and then nod upward. And then I'll fade up the so recording. Nobody, yeah, nobody I'll, has to know. The musicians I'll, don't know. Nobody knows. Well, it was more so like, I'm not going to record unless you say Scotty and then nod upward and then I'll start a record. That's our that's our shorthand for recording. And then I'll make sure I fade up the recording and have it be on the one. Right. So why is he recording sometimes and not recording others? Well, when he said that. Oh, so wait, hold on. You're also saying like if he's already pr- playing. If he's, pl- if yeah, he's that's playing, correct. That's okay. correct. That's he's playing. So if he's playing and he and feels like, the jam yeah. and he's going to maybe get a song out of this. Okay. I don't want him to end it and then go. Did you record that? And I go right. no, because then I look like a would, dick. Because how would you know? So I, when I jogged up there and jumped on the stage and went over to him and said in his ear, "If you want me to record, just say Scotty and nod upward." You don't have to, well, I didn't say, you don't have to say record. Specifically what I said was, if you want me to record, just say Scotty and nod upward. And I'll start recording right on the one. I'll fade up to on the one. And there, and after, and I think he liked that because right. then he had me do it a bunch of days in right. a row. <laughs> and they would be jamming. He'd go, Scotty. 
and he would tilt his head upward, and then I'd go, I'd pull the record fader down, and then I'd start the recording, and then go, ding, 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 ding. So then when and you would it, practice that. So, well, then, no, he just knows to yeah, the obviously. timing. But, oh, you're but, saying, but, but, but you're he, saying he, the, he, I mean, you had it rehearsed in your head. Like, I had I'm going to. That's right. Like this is the this is the body movement. This is the physicality yep. of what I need to do to deliver for this man to but, make it end and start on a one and on a beat because Dustin knows better than I do. You he wanted it to be sexy no matter what and cool. You never just like he never. So I've when ta- he when he when he plays that back. He listens to it and it's the music goes zing, right into the one. Yeah. If Versus not, if just hitting record and the volume's yeah. up and it just starts yeah. wherever. Because if you're not timed right, then he, it's not everything, sexy. Everything he did, it had to be, like he didn't describe to me this way, but it, it had to be cool. It had to be sexy. And it had to be like on the one and then end right. on the one. That's why as a as a band leader, he was the best because he'd be going, doom, 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 on the one. And, um, all right, on the chorus, we're going to... Um, it was always like sounded complete and full. Right. And the reason he did that is because he didn't like to hear things that weren't musical. He didn't just like let it fall apart like a train wreck. Right. He would just go on the one. And, and it, yeah, was it controlling? Sure. But it was it. He was very, being very intentional on making it musical. He said all rehearsals should be musical. Everything should be musical. And he once told me at SIR, in, or I think it was SIR in, in LA, man. He plugged in his guitar. What's SIR? Uh, 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 studio instrument instrument rentals. It's a rehearsal place right. in LA. Just so people know, we're just in uh, yeah. rehearsal mode, like a he, he was, like a Paisley Park in LA. Yeah. You rent. Yep. So he was rehearsing in in Los Angeles, and he had to plug in his own guitar, and it was on already. And he went, and he shook his head and looked down, and he went on the mic and he said, "The first guitar tech that can make me never hear that sound again." I'll give him a million dollars <laughs> because it was not cool to hear that. Like, it's like, I think it's like a B flat, you know, it's just, it's just noise. Yeah. Noise. And, and then un- everybody, unsexy. if you're in the audience and that's happening during the show, yeah. everybody knows something's gone. Like they look over, it takes your attention away yeah. from. And that was in on. rehearsal with nobody except the band in the room. He just didn't want anything not musical to be in, in his mind and in his hearing. And that's cool. And I've learned from that. And I learned a lot from him. And so what do you learn? That you just be cool and be like, be musical about everything you do. So when I'm like in my career, I've worked with a lot of musical directors that are in charge of the, setting up the music for musicians, uh, for, for solo artists and bands. Like literally, like maybe a hundred, probably 80 or 100 musical directors. And they all have their own style. But one thing none of them do none of them ever have was go on the one and and then go all right y'all when we come back for the chorus we need to da, 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 two three da, boom, bang. well right. and plus it's also practicing rehearsing your band like when i call on the one we're on the one where do you yeah. think he got that from that vibe james brown really yeah, yeah. why why i don't <laughs> james, james brown is cool no i mean james I, brown is cool he's cool he's cool and he's sexy and i mean and that's exactly that's too like going back to talking about him like not challenging like stevie wonder and mm-hmm. miles davis like those are the people that he grew up listening to you know helped shape him so yeah. what happened to that sound or that that vibe it's not even a sound right like i'm just like i guess i'm trying to contrast like why is prince's unique in that respect right? well you you the question you asked earlier was about live like what he live he didn't really have a peer 
he tried to create a peer and a, and a greater than so he could challenge it and come out on top. But he really had, other than the time, which he created and basically yep. was, um, he didn't, ha- he was peerless. He didn't have a peer. So he tried creating a peer and, and a superior and he couldn't. So then he became his own uh, competition. And then that didn't work out so well for him because yeah. he, like I said, and, and I never got around to saying 2002, he worked really hard. 2004, he did not have the same work ethic. Really? Nope. What was he doing? Um, he was responding to that book. <laughs> he was, um, he knew other people would take the, um, I challenged him on the song when doves cry. I look at it as a mistake. It's not a, I'm not looking for a badge of, he, it was a mistake. I made a mistake and he, um, uh, he was letting John get away with playing the clap in the wrong part of the song. So you're talking about musicology. Him performing When Doves Cry. That's correct. Musicology, when John performed Doves Cry, we were in rehearsals. Um, and John, it, it's like, do, 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 Like John was playing it, and then it happened in the loop later. And I right away, I was like, no, that's not right. Like, that's not at all the right spot, because I can hear it happen later in the loop right. or whatever. Or vice versa, like the loop happened yeah. first than John. But either way, either way, John was playing it like loud and wrong. So I queued it up for John, and on a break, I said, John, come here. Like, do you want to listen to this? And just, and John listened to it, and he was like, what? And I said, that's the studio version. Like, you should probably play it. If you're going to play the clap, play it when the clap. And, and he was like, no, I think I just, like, that's where I play it, and I think that's where it should be played. And then suddenly I got that, like, well, I'm, I'm, Prince has asked me to be the eyes and ears. He's right. like, be my eyes and ears. I can't be where you're being. Right. And so we had this sort of weird agreement, or not weird, like I would call things out to him privately that I thought weren't working. Man, I caught him on the wrong day because... Prince? Yeah, because he, the break happened, Prince walked back in, I was like, I actually remember like deciding at the last second to do it. Like if he comes in first, I'll, I'll mention it to him. He walks in first from break and I was like, hey man, let me just mention something to you. Like John's playing the clap on the wrong spot, oh. which is like ratting out. You're, you don't do that. But it was for the sake of the music. I've always tried to put the music first. And man, he knew it was wrong. He knew what I was talking about. And he said, are you the musical director? And I was like, I remember that, that feeling inside when I was like, oh, fuck, I fucked up. And I said, I said, no, no, man. I mean, I'm just pointing it out because like you told me to be the, I remember saying, you, you told me to be the eyes and the ears. <laughs> you said. And he, Prince made a point of it. He let John keep doing it. And not only that, but during the show, he would come down my, um, it was in the round. Yeah. Right, he would right. come down my, uh, like toward me. And he would like do an accent hat grab or something on the wrong, oh. on the wrong. So it'll go. And like, so he, he was would, like, let me make this cool. Yep. And let me, and let me rub this in and look right at me when he would do this move. Like he was saying, fuck you. I, so what happened is. What do you think that was? Um, Just. I, I know what it is. It was the same thing as I mentioned when I, 
when I talked about that person that neither one of us had met in Atlanta, who was excited about the show and you shouldn't do that to her and neither will I, mm-hmm. I mean, I, sh- I won't do that to her and neither should you. I suddenly in that moment was closer to his fans than he was. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. Like what? So, I mean, I am a fan, right? Yeah. Like I started going to see Prince 95. I just like, Paisley Park junkie, like all of a sudden, like I'm into something that shit. I don't even know. Like you talk about musical <laughs> grades and tones and all that stuff, right? I'm not trying to call myself out here, but like I don't know about any of that. I mean, I just know, like, hey, like something's cool is happening here, and that's like what I'm into. How do you think Prince viewed his fans? Like, what was his take on? The fan community and the various levels of the fan community. Um, he he loved the, the fans. He was there for them. And he was into trying to cut out anyone between him and the fans. He didn't like record company executives. Well, I mean, that's pretty, yeah, clear. pretty well documented. He didn't want anybody. He didn't like engineers and he didn't like technicians. <laughs> and he wanted everyone to get out of the way between what he created and the people that um that he was trying to affect it's me here's the music and it's and it's right to you right to you and 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 i was at least like i don't know if i was smart enough at first but i understood after a certain point if i'm transparent not hiding and transparent not like invisible if i do what i'm supposed to do the fans won't notice me if i do great sound they'll just go oh my god it sounded amazing um he, he put fans first, as evidenced by the NPG Music Club and them getting first access. And he knew that putting his biggest fans in the front, 10, 12, 15 rows, other fans had to look through them to see Prince. And they were right. going so crazy that then they, it like trickled backwards. Yeah. Like that's, that's really genius. Did he talk to you about the fans? Was he like, oh, hey, yeah. I, th- this, these are these like, like there's my fans and, there's, and then there's my fans. Especially you know, like, like, in 02 and 04. He was acutely that. aware of, of his, of what the fans were, what, what they wanted. And then in the reason I think he respected the position I was in, I won't say me specifically, but the position I was in is that I was in the crowd. So I was a fan. Yeah. And then if I wanted to hear a certain, like, if you're listening to DMSR, and there's a little bass lick in the beginning of DMSR. And I know Dustin knows it. Boom, doom, dick it, dick it, dick Like, it's just a little yeah. bass pull-off. And if you, I can't hear that in the song, and I'm a fan, and I know it's there, and, like, oh, nobody plays it, then you're going to go, oh, it's not authentic, or something's wrong. So, like, I would say to Rhonda, like, hey, there's a little bass thing. And she would listen and go, I got that, Scotty. No, thanks for pointing that out, brother. And I go, cool. And she'd go, bang, doom, dick, dick. And then it became more authentic. Right. And so what I want to say is I never felt that my position was more important than the music. And that when, when he, uh, what trickled down from him was he respected people who put something other than their paycheck in front of them. Okay. And I remember him saying specifically to one guitar tech in 1993 or something who was leaving. It was like his last day. And he said, I heard him say off mic, he, you know, the guy got his, got a stiff upper lip and gave him his guitar for the last time or whatever. <laughs> and he goes, you know, a thanks, it'd be nice once in a while. And off mic, Prince said, bitch, your check is your thanks. Oh, shit. <laughs> 
And I remember, you know, that was when I filed away, like, okay, this guy's just paying you and that's the thanks you get. But I know it wasn't that. There was a deeper thing. And his fans were like really super important to him. And and then if you if you if we um worked with him for a long time, if we sort of got on board with that and and appropriated or in some cases reappropriated the things that we felt were important and then put them forward, then we didn't care so much about the after show money. We cared about the after show. Yeah. We didn't care about the tour money. We cared about we cared about the tour. Right. And I got in trouble on some interview in some interview a few years ago saying that uh, that I was putting up a stink about how much I was paid on a uh, on the last shows before I left him. That's not what it was about. In context, it was yeah. about saying I would reward people who did what I did for that long by paying them whatever they wanted, right. basically, because the the thing that we put forward, Dustin, for sure, because he was there way later than I was on a lot of shows. And then some nights, like, Dustin would be called and we wouldn't. I wouldn't have to run sound. It was just a gig. Right? Yeah, and he would be, like, DJing till whatever time for five people and a prince and a person and a prince and a woman. <laughs> or whatever. And he's, like, spinning. And you had to, like, be all on board. And um, A lot of those nights. <laughs> and, and so with with me, I always, the knock on me is that I had a diverse enough range of artists with whom I was working that I could leave and do something else. Like not a lot of, a lot of people that worked with Prince when their life is over and someone is reading their, their, not their obit, their, what do you call it when you read at someone's funeral? Eulogy. Their their, their, their eulogy. Prince's name will be in their eulogy. I, this person worked with Prince from these years and did this. I told my wife, don't even mention any of the artists that I've worked with. Yeah. Don't even mention that I was a sound guy. I don't care. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. And by the same token, none of it does caring about when the clap is and when Dove Sky matter. Well, it's got to matter to somebody. Yeah. Susie. In uh, Row X. X. <laughs> yeah, Yeah. I mean, I guess this kind of come coming back to the fans themselves and conversations with prince around the fans Mm -hmm. like was this conversational hey this is what your fans want here's your fans here's Susie and row x like is he dialoguing with you on that or is he is it more well the only thing he really said i mean he said he wants to remove everybody between he and the fans and i i remember saying um I remember telling him a story about Sting. I said, you know, Sting said something really cool once. He was going into, um, at least what I told Prince. I don't know if it's the true part of the story, but I said, like, Sting heard somebody, I think they were a window washer. That's the part I'm not 100 on, 100%. But he heard somebody, like, whistling or singing every breath you take. And he went, whoa. Here I am. I'm walking into a building and there's somebody like whistling or singing every breath you take and that's a that's a huge journey between prince's i mean b- between sting's mind and that person's mind right. think of all the people that are in between that producers <clears throat> and record execs and recording engineers and, and labels stations. and radio stations and for that guy to be humming or whistling a tune that sting wrote and he's right next to him and prince was ultimately interested in getting rid of those people 
more direct. I mean, he wanted me to, there was a period where he was trying to record guitar once. It was when I brought Dave Hampton in to work with Prince. Prince wanted to spruce up Paisley Park and he asked my recommendation of a studio builder and I recommended Dave Hampton. And Dave came in and shortly after that, uh, Prince had an engineer in and he was trying to record a guitar part and the engineer like turned and started playing with gear and Prince said, no, 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 I want this guitar. He taps on his honer. I want this guitar to go to that tape machine. Can you plug this guitar into that tape machine without going through all that stuff? And the guy's like, well, uh, normally we, and Prince looks at me. I was like, <laughs> I'm just a guy. Yeah. So the same thing he wanted to do with his signal, which is plugged directly into a sound, you know, into a tape machine, he wanted to do to his fans. He really revered his fans. He cared what, a lot about what they thought. And, and he wanted to get rid of people that were an ancillary part of the noise. How the do you music know business that? How was, do you know that, like, as far as him and his relationship with his fans? I mean, I, I hear you, like, and I believe you, but how do you know he's well, trying to you get can rid of that noise? At least you can believe that I believe it. No, it, I believe it was, that. It was through I'm his, just trying to, like, his get actions. a sense of it. it. Think about it. If he didn't want to hear a guitar being plugged in, that's a, that's yeah. a good indicator that he wanted to play and hear the end result and not have all the non-musical stuff in the middle. And he looked at people in the industry, looking back at the body of his yep. work and the body of his uh, his uh, his um, uh, image out yep. in the world. Like he wanted to cut everyone out that wasn't part of the musical process. Do you remember <clears throat> the first time you saw him with? That could be if that's Prince. Yeah, know, we fuck, don't answer that shit. That's Dudley D shit. I got my. I, got my I silenced mine. I don't we, know what's uh, going on. You can go so back. It's a FaceTime. Do you remember when he came out with Slave on his face? Um, like in like what was that like? Because you were likely doing all things drums for Michael B at the time. Probably. Were you gone? Or I don't like, know. When was did he do that night? Ninety three, ninety four. Yeah. Like I well, mean, signed, and what was that like? Were you like, oh my God, this dude's got a slave on his face? Well, or he signed the big deal. He signed a big deal with uh, Warner's, I think. Like $100 million. I don't know the stipulation, but he had to sell like a certain amount of albums to make sure he got the right. money. And it was like really, I think it, it might have been a poor choice. I, I don't think he th maybe thought that through. Well, he told me one time that Ooh. that uh, the reason why he signed that, and this might be out too on, on the web, but was to get Paisley Park. Like, that's what he, like, he wanted that, he needed that chunk of money because... To get the facility? He, because he, he thought, what do I not have that they have? It's the recording studio, you know? Like, I don't have that. That's what the record labels have. I need to go to them to record. But if I can have my own space, now I can, you know... Well, he had already built Paisley when he signed that deal. It was, was it? it? Yeah, it was like it was. 93 or 92 yep. or 93 yeah, yeah, that he signed comes the big up. deal. Yeah. I remember he left for the week. He left on a, I'm pretty sure Michael Bland has a, a incredible memory. He remember this. Um, Prince left for a weekend. Like something tells me like he wasn't there Friday at rehearsal or something like that. And right. I was like, oh, this is weird. And he, when he did come back, he was happy as a fucking clam. Really? Yep. He was like super jovial and outgoing, and I didn't, I didn't, nobody, I didn't know what happened, but apparently that's when he signed the deals. Like, ooh, I got here it. we go. I yep. just made this cash. Yep, yep. It's a lot of money. 
That's a lot of money. And then what? Money. Then, then, then the slave came? Like, uh, maybe when he realized that he... Well, I don't know. I can't... I don't know that. Yeah, yeah. But but at some point, do you, do you recall at all like that movement from, hey, I'm happy. I got this deal to... I'm I'd be interested to know when he face. did write that on his face because I don't actually... I don't remember like him being... Well, I'm... I was yeah. far away, you know. I was yeah, yeah, behind. Him. You're, you're I don't remember him. At the time. I don't remember him coming out on the stage and then like having that on him. When did he? When did 93, he, 94. Okay. 95 is the what the internet's are saying for the exact year. Okay, yeah. so that makes so you feel like we should know this. That tracks because <laughs> everybody at home is listening. They're like, "Come on, you guys, it's 95." Well, <laughs> we we can't. It's all a blur. I don't remember him walking past me and having that on his cheek. Okay, so you so I I would I would have guessed post ninety four. So that tracks. Fair enough. Um, So you weren't there when all of a sudden it was like, no, you don't call him Prince. What the hell just happened? Yeah, no, I wasn't there when. So what happened? What happened? I mean, we don't call him Prince. Let's just talk about all things name change. Yeah, that that I don't remember because once I left in ninety four, it was like I think April of ninety four. I'm guessing here. I think it was in the spring of ninety four. When Sheila hired me and did yep. her E train tour, so when mm-hmm. she started, I was gone, and I wasn't to I didn't drum tech another gig with him after that. And actually, all the techs got let go just months after I quit. Really? Yep. Well, like he cleaned house. I don't know. He cleaned house. He was always threatening. He said, "You know, if I had Japanese techs, <laughs> this wouldn't happen." Well, so wait, Takumi was around so long. I don't know, yeah. but this was ninety three. <laughs> yeah, he 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 used to marvel at the way. We were in Budokan once. I don't know, remember when it was. It must have been two thousand two. Yeah, we do. We were at Bu- yeah, we were in Japan together. I have yeah. photos. Yeah. But but that's that's way later. That's way later, but decade. but he did he did make comments about he he was weirdly it was the only time I saw him at a load in. What? He was at the load in. He was sitting at the front on the front of house riser, and I came in. And I went fuck. He's, he's on the riser. There. There's <laughs> my soundboard. Nothing was there. He's just sitting on a chair on the riser at front of house. And so I just like walked up there and put a chair and sat down next to him. Like he maybe wanted to talk about something or tell me what he wanted to do or whatever. Maybe he just wanted to see the whole process. It could have been. I mean, because again, that was like him just being super independent on his own kind of doing that tour. He watched the Japanese uh, stagehands run. They would run in. They had all helmets on. You have to wear helmets. And they would run in with the soundboard, with the gear and push it up the ramp and then run back to the truck and run in and like running and prince said and he knew enough to say this what do you think the lo- what do you think the union locals in oh, new york city would shucks. think of this <laughs> yeah he did he, he he was he was comparing and contrasting yeah. oh, and yeah. i said oh they'd tell him slow down yeah because we, we don't want to move so fast speaking of comparing and contrasting you know, all things Paisley Park rehearsals, like living the Paisley vibe, doing, we're in the sound stage doing rehearsals. Compare and contrast that to like Maxwell. Like mm. where, where, where is Maxwell rehearsing? Where's D'Angelo rehearsing? Where, where's Duran Duran rehearsing? Like yeah. how does that, like, cause Prince had his own facility yeah everyone rehearsed usually in la at center staging maxwell certainly did we spent weeks and weeks there god i remember almost feeling like i lived in in the uh mary in the uh hilton the mary the burbank hilton now it's the burbank now it's the burbank marriott but we um uh there was a lot of time spent a lot of time that could have been more efficient but uh maxwell had a great band 
he had a super great band and he um he worked hard he he used prince as a as sort of a um blueprint in one form or another about ethic work ethic yep. and he learned uh, some of that ethic from me he he was able to to, to glean like some yeah of glean that, like, like like what was this are like are working hard say, enough scotty yeah like and um it was cool because <clears throat> maxwell was super cool about what he would do he would <clears throat> he would wait till a break and then come into my room where i had uh isolated mixing that i was doing and he'd say what's up motherfucker is that shit right like is this shit right what can we and i would say well that's cool but you know on that he could probably go dun, boom three snare pickup and, <laughs> and he's like cool and then he'd go into person and go um, y'all just thought of some shit, right? <laughs> just, Why don't we just like go two, three fucking snare pickup and shit and go right in the fucking groove? And they go, yeah, yeah. Yeah, all right, let's roll, man. <laughs> but I was close enough with Daryl Diaz, the gotcha. PMD. I was like, yeah, I told him. And he's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know you. So what was the vibe like, though, compared to Paisley Park? I guess like, um, that's the comparison. Everything is slower. Everything is slower. Outside of Paisley? Yeah. Why is that? Why are things faster? Paisley, Paisley Park was a furious pace. You, I always felt like I was almost like doing a show. It almost show felt ready. Like we, show ready. Yeah, we were just always ready. Even in the, you know, Dustin was part of this band called Funky Baldheads. Funky Baldheads. Funky like a. Let's talk about that. Um, it was some. It was I don't know what kind of project it was. Like a pet project. There was a side project. It was something Kirk started. I mean, Kip and Devious were around. Oh my God, Mike Scott and Mike Scott, a fish, a fish, me. But I think all I, of it. Morris was part of it too. Yeah, I mean, I I was kind of brought in at the tail end of it. I believe uh, we did a bunch I, of shows. I was bald, and, and then Prince was like, "Why don't you put the DJ in the band?" And then that's when I first started touring with Prince to yeah. open up the show, spinning records while people are coming in, and then. Perform with the bald heads. Yeah, that was oh, spin some 2000, more. 2001, right around there. And then lights would go out. You'd cut my music. Yep. People would haul my stuff off the stage, and then Prince would come out, and then I would get told where the after party's at. And that like 15, 20 minutes before the show ended, I would get in a car and go over and set yeah. up for the after party to be already ready to play. So, but it was all of us were bald. The band was bald. I was bald. And it just became this thing. <laughs> and Fongilea. Um, there was a one rehearsal in the MPG in the back room, MPG room, and I don't know if you were a part of this. It was great. It was a great like another little moment that um, devious, mm-hmm. like DVS, right? Yep. But he called yep. him, it was devious. He is the creator. I don't of even the know his real Hives. name, but he is the David creator. Schwartz. He is the creator of amazing. the Purple Highs logo. Our whole logo, man. He's devious. he is amazing, Thank you. and he wouldn't remember me. But I was mixing him, and he was so into his rehearsal. Not even a show. It was just a rehearsing, and Prince was sitting next to me on a stool, and we were all kind of grooving to this, to this, uh, uh, to them playing. And it was the end of this song, where he gets kind of violently ah, like that, and he grabbed a trash can, and he turned it over and dumped it with the mic in his hand. He like one handed a trash can. All the fucking trash fell out on him. No, and he, and he let the trash can slam down on his head, and it was all like in a in a cave, and he went. And then Prince turned and goes, hashtag dedication. <laughs> Before hashtag. But he just yelled out, dedication. And I said, right. Like, this dude was dedicated to a, 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 a rehearsal. So it's funny. Just... I was actually uh, emailing with Devious about some other stuff today. And I told them we were supposed to talk tonight. And I told them uh, that I was doing this interview with you. And he said. Perfect. 
Oh, awesome. Tell him I said hi. And sorry for all that screaming back in the day into the mics. <laughs> not realizing it would catch my voice regardless. <laughs> but just, but you know, when Prince saw that, that and just turned and said, dedication. And I, th- I think that's a clue as well. Like just telling that, saying that someone was dedicated to the, there was nobody in the, it was right. the band and Prince and me watching this. And seeing that dedication and calling it out meant that he was he saw he saw him in show mode, right? And he always liked show mode. Show mode was good. Well, Prince was also watching too. So yeah. So <laughs> do you have like in your experience, your time after shows, Paisley Park gigs, arena gigs, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera? Do you have like a favorite set of like jams? Like, is this like hey? I love this song or I love this. Hmm. Well, or, or does it, it all, it, it, it sort of, a lot of it blends, but I, I used to really like, um, <clears throat> during the show doing purple rain and that's sort of, I know it comes, that sounds cliche, but the reason is, is because it's such an, it's a very evocative song and it's, um, it evokes a lot of emotion and it's, and it's, um, it's when I had a chance uh, candidly, I didn't have to do a lot during Purple Rain, mix-wise. Right. I just had to make sure that um, you could that you were going to hear the echo correctly, right on yep. his vocal. Yeah, it had to match what Rob did live and what they mixed like, back years ago, and um, so I didn't have a lot to do. The song kind of mixes itself; it's just a big ballad, so I didn't have to mix. So I used to. I remember I would look around a lot during Purple Rain, really, and I would see. Um, I have so many like um, random memories of people crying. And like having their hands up and almost, it was almost like a, uh, it, it was borderline, uh, it was very emotional experience for a lot of people and almost, um, spiritual. spiritual. Sure. And <laughs> you would, guys say it, not me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jinx. <laughs> I would, I would see it and then, uh, see people crying. And I remember feeling really proud of that moment. Like nothing I do, I can hold or I don't Just produce as, anything as, as a rule. Yeah, a sound engineer doesn't produce anything. I mean, in my case, I was fortunate to produce a box set right. and C note and and the Vegas DVD and all that stuff. But once but, the show's over, then... but it's over. Yeah, it's that's just a way of recording it and releasing it. But once it's over, it's sort of there's always been a a bit of a um there there's a uh, it's not emptiness. I'm trying to it just there's nothing there. Like I leave and then it's just gone. And so I always sort of felt like something was missing, but. I found that when I would watch people, I knew I was doing something. Mm-hmm. I was a part of a process of a lot yeah. of people. And then I was suddenly one of those people that Prince wanted to, that he was yeah. affecting. Right. right? You- so there were many, many times I remember the different soundboards and how it looked to see tears drip on the soundboard. From whom? Me. From you? Yeah. There, that was like, that's one of my top five memories of Prince is that I would, that I would, cry during purple rain and i'd see the tears dripping on the soundboard what 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 do you think it is about that song or that experience Mm. that made you cry um i don't know just something i don't know i haven't i haven't thought about that i think that's the first time i really so for me during that song when i was on tour with him uh whenever he would hit that solo oh yeah people were singing together like i would every time Get chills up my back. It was the, I would get it was chills. It was yeah. when the people come in. The people and the, come and in sing and he's that killing woo, that solo. Woo, woo, right? That's the moment. That's when it would really set in. So this guy wrote the, the this guy wrote a song that like 
really sort of moved everyone in the same sort of resonance and you would feel that resonance in the venue and that would that would bring you yep to emotion would that bring prince to emotion uh not that i ever saw other than the piano show so in 2016 yeah so this is where i'm going which is interesting because i was at that show Mm. and i came to i didn't go to the first show and and we were debating like i was just like you know we got all kinds of debt you know, I just put my shit out there, right? Um, you know, like I mean, it's it was expensive, and I mean, I tickets seen, were hard to get to. Tickets were hard to get, and like we'd seen Prince so many times, and like like do we really want to spend all this money to see Prince one more time and again, right? And I mean, I pretty much had decided no, right? And my ex and I, it was like, no, we're not gonna go. Like we we've, we've done this, we've seen this. Dude, like we don't need to go to this show. Mm-hmm. So I woke up on Saturday morning and I had a change of heart, right? Like, fuck, we got we need to get these tickets, <laughs> right? You know, going. so so I mean, literally, I bought the tickets that Saturday morning and was just like, all right, we're gonna go. I bought them literally one at a time, and we went to the show. And I mean, I'd seen Prince. You know, I mean, like, I mean, you've seen Prince freaking a lot. You probably been seeing Prince a thousand plus times, right, Dustin? You've seen him. 500 plus times i've seen prince give or take 160 s times right yeah who's counting? and yeah who's counting but but, <laughs> but, but it kind of matters the, the story matters right because i was standing when he played purple rain at the piano and the microphone show i was standing literally his uh his piano was facing his piano was facing whatever direction and, mm-hmm. and he was there and you were i think behind him and Scott I was back, yeah, back to the right, back to the yeah. right. And, so and I was literally in dude, I'd seen the Prince and I, and I hadn't just seen Prince like, dude, I'd seen Prince. Fuck. You know, like, I mean, I'd seen him like, dude, I was like front, right center, you know, like I, if I looked to the left, he was playing the guitar. If I looked to the right, he's playing the keys. Like that's where I lived for like for, from 96 on right. 95 on. And you know, that set, like, I mean, that was the first time, like, I was literally direct, eye to eye, I mean, he didn't know I was there, but eye to eye, he looked up, and that was the first time I'd actually seen him cry. Yep. Purple Rain, piano and microphone, you know, shit, 36 feet from him, somewhere in there, I, you I know? Wasn't, and, and I like, wasn't prepared. Yeah, and, and, like, and, like, I looked at him, I was like, dude, like the hell is happening See, i wasn't i i i um felt like i was prepared for everything when i was you know i was always uh frosty when yeah. i was working with him and then i sort of try to carry that to other artists and be really really frosty for them what does frosty I, mean frosty means ready ready to go i'm here ready to engage balls, what I'm doing. on the balls of your feet like ready to bounce and and do stuff and um uh sometimes uh, as an aside artists don't like that because you show that you're that you care more and are ready more than they are Hmm. it exposes in them a weakness like well you got to be ready for this and what if this happens and sometimes technicians don't like it sometimes artists don't like it i found that out like a in a good way and in a bad way in my career to show that you care more than people i was ready to go for that show that piano show and so was i do you remember when i walked in no you don't remember that 
I got called to DJ and I walked in. I was had both of my turntables in my hand. I was like, oh, Scotty, what's up? And you're like, hey, what's going on? What are you doing here? And I was like, I called in to DJ and you're holding the CD and you're like, oh, he just gave me the CD to play. Yeah, as people are coming in the door, yeah. and I was like, oh, that, I was like, I, I do remember. That. I had, I had like spent like Best four game. hours like figuring out a set, like thinking about its piano and a microphone. So like, what's the vibe? What am I gonna play? I had all these different crates ready, and like all this thought put into it. And you were like, yeah, he just gave me the CD. I do, re- I do remember that because I was like, I, I'll just watch the I show. Was, I guess I was sitting there with that I guess disc. I was free tickets. I had that disc on my finger. Yeah. Th- thinking, what the fuck am I gonna do with a disc? Like he was still living in the world of discs and I thought so I had to get a drive to plug into my computer to put it in on the laptop so that I could make a playlist because I didn't even have a CD player at my position DJ Dudley just showed up so I had to put the CD into a playlist and then he told me use track 23 I think it was as the walk-in track so I created two playlists one was 1 through 22 that could go on repeat and then tra- the second playlist was track 23. So I let... All Dustin's preparing all things. Yeah. And you're just like... Straightening the tie, putting a bow tie on, getting all ready. And track I, 23, I, hit play, bro. And so when Prince was ready, I, I faded out and I went to track 23 and, and played it. Um, my point in that in all this, what I was getting to, is that I, I'm, I was always proud to be prepared. I was not prepared at all for him to be emotional. Boy. I had no... Uh, and it wasn't a big deal. It's just that I, I sort of, the first time he walked off in the first show, I sort of thought like he's just coming back to wait for them to cheer so he can go back on, play mm-hmm. that game, right? Yep. But when I saw him, I could see that he was, that there were, that he was right. crying. And I was like, oh, fuck. You know, I didn't, I didn't say, oh, fuck, but I thought, shit, I don't have any, I don't have tissues. What am I, I don't doing? have like anything. All that was there was his tea. Yeah. And so all I did, and like it was weird to see him crying, so all I did was turn away from him because I was had my spot and he just came and stood like right where I was mixing. So all I did was turn away to give him sort of, that was just an emotional space. Yeah. I just turned away. So I wasn't just like staring at this dude crying right. and he, he didn't ask for tissue. He didn't say anything. He just sort of wiped his eyes and I was like, fuck. So then, and he did that a couple times and I was just, I couldn't leave and go get tissues. So the second show, I yep. made sure I had tissues, his tea and all that stuff there. So when he came off during those shows, he grabbed tissue and did his thing. Yeah. So, but th- the point in all that is that he it, he was definitely emotional during those two piano shows. I'm not saying that means anything. I'm not saying that was more important than it yeah. is. But um, Purple Rain, getting back to the, your original yep. question, is Purple Rain was a song that is very evocative. It's easy to, it's not, it's not easy to get emotional about Lady Cab Driver. Makes but it sense. is but it is about Purple Rain. It's yeah. it's his it's the it's the song no matter right. what. Yeah, it's interesting for me because you know as I watched him, I mean, I, once again, I'd seen Prince let's just call it 159 times before. But right? he was counting. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> give or take, whatever. But and and none of them had the same emotive response. But it's interesting hearing you talk about, hey, like people including yourself did right yeah and here he is in this particular gig at Paisley park stripped down yeah and he and he did feel it yes for sure that show for sure i can't even speak to 
any other show. No, that's not true. Hold on. Up until that point, yeah, that was the first show that I'd seen like raw that I knew was like confirmed true raw emotion. I saw it in Australia. Okay. After that, uh, when Den- when uh, yeah, Vanity passed Matthews. away. Yeah. Yep. When she passed away, and he got the news, and then Kirk, t- you know, we knew, we found out. And I believe, and I've said this before, I'm not sure, but he made me erase one show, and I'm pretty sure it was that show. Hmm. So there's one multi-track recording yep. of that show missing. There's Go one on. there's one recording of, of those shows in Australia right. missing, and I'm pretty sure it was that show. Hmm. I, I, I'm not 100% because I gave the shows up to... What do you think he thought... The lawyers that threatened me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we know about those lawyers. Um, this is Paisley Knights. Um, what do you think about... Um, <laughs> it's Purple Eyes. Yeah, yeah, Purple Eyes. What do you... I mean... Do you think they're listening an hour and 45 minutes in? Nope. No. You gotta no. have. You got to be a dedicated <laughs> fan to make it this long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what do you think it is about... I mean, that emotionality. Do you think he was... I mean, clearly, he knew how it affected people. Well, uh, I, I why, don't. Why? I, why? Why were? The, why was this different? I, I don't know, but I can say this: when, when um, the only thing I do know is that when we are part of an ensemble, it's much easier to distribute the load on other people, right? And you're doing things with other people in concert. Not only is it a concert happening in a room, yep. but you're in concert with p- other people who are relying on your part. Yeah, but when we're emotional, it's more like a plucked one string, and you can it can waver yep. the way it wants to. And he sort of really let himself go. Now, as I've Which is I've really, talked I've really talked about beautiful. it beautiful. I've talked about it before. The night before uh, the January twenty first, twenty sixteen show, which was my favorite show of Prince ever, um, uh, because it was just not to it was just Prince and me and the room and the right, people. Right, right. That was it. It was we, no other shit. Before we go there, can we talk a little bit about the, just the sound and like the rehearsals for that? Like, cause you had the sound, you had, I mean, do you call it surround sound? No, it was, it was, uh, it's really called 4.0. It's called, it's, it's just four different source points for the sound right. pointing inward. And Prince and I argued on the 19th, I guess, about it. We argued and I said, this isn't going to work. It's only good for one point in the room in the very center. Right. As soon as you move to the right or toward one of the speakers, toward one of the corners, it sounds like it's coming from the corner. Which is kind of funny thinking also back to what you had to do for musicology with putting this in, sound in the round. In you the know? Ra- well, yeah, the, compare and contrast the, that. Like, what's musicology compared to there's a, the, it's Paisley a, it's Park? It's the exact opposite. Okay. So when, um, so when, when, you're in the, when the sound is coming, when the performers are in the center of a room and... Yeah the speakers are in the center of the room pointing out everybody hears it at the time that they get it wherever they are in the arena. Right. So it works. Pointing right. speakers out works. Right. I have a subset to that discussion after I get done with this. When you're in, when you turn speakers around in the corner and you point them inward, it only works for the very center of the room. Right. And Prince didn't understand that. And Kirk was not about to challenge Prince on that because <laughs> I don't think Kirk thought it through either. He didn't know or care. Right. He was like, Hey man, he so wants the speakers the, in the corner. And that was Prince's idea. Prince's to, idea. Okay, yeah. because he had always wanted to hear sound in, in like quad sound. Right. He called it, or you know, in quad sound. Right. He wanted to hear it from the corners. Um, so I set up speakers for him in the corners. 
he showed up early. I showed up an hour early of him showing up, and he was already there. And this is like a handful, handful of days before, though, right? Correct. It wasn't like you guys were in that room no. tweaking things for a couple of weeks, no. rehearsing for a couple of we weeks. We only had a couple of days before it happened. Okay. Um, so I went. I showed up, and I was like, shit, there's candles lit. He, the room's dark. He's in the middle listening to hit and run phase something. Right. And I walk in. I was like, shit, he's in an outfit. He's standing Show in the mode. center of the room. Show mode. <laughs> so I walk out next to him. And he goes, sounds good, right? Hmm. And I said, yeah, here. And it was really loud, too. He, had, he always listened to things really oh, loud. loud. So I said, um, let's go over here. And I kind of had a gesture, like, let's go over here. And we moved about three meters to one corner. Yeah. And then I said, and he goes, now it sounds like it's coming out of there. And he pointed up to the corner. And I said, exactly. Right. So I said, it's weird to see you over there and the sounds coming from the right corner over there. And he goes, well, that's up to you. You're the engineer. And I went, <laughs> so all I did on, is I, 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 and then he leaves. So I just lowered the speakers and we, uh, Kirk had the, the forethought to just put a bunch of speakers around the stage. Anything that we owned, we threw up around the stage. Right. Speakers. And then I just sort of, I relied mostly on those speakers and then brought in the other speakers as sort of support. And I did mix it in a way that would make uh, effects bounce around. Right. For I did sure. it. I did a cool thing where um, on the beginning of uh, Sometimes It Snows in April. It was really cool because he sings the first line, Tracy Dines, you know, Civil War. And then he, in rehearsal on the 20th, he went. Yep. And then I stopped him, which nobody else would do. <laughs> but I was like, hey, hold up, man. It's just you and him. Yeah, it's me hold and up, him. Hold up, man. <laughs> on on the just... 20th, we were rehearsing that. He <clears throat> said, you want to rehearse today? And I said, sure. So I met him back there and we rehearsed for about three or four hours. Just Because you're also to the back of the side of the stage. Yeah, so I was you're right not, next to him. You're not yeah. front of house where no. you normally are. And I told him, I don't want to be out in the house because it's I want the house to be full of people. Right. Just people. I don't want to any technical stuff right. out there. Which was a good move. And then I was smart enough not to set up where he could look at me and see me. Right. Because then I'm a technician in his view. Right, right, right. And that's, he always wanted to remove that. He didn't want to see technicians. So All he wanted to see was Mark 36 feet away. So I backed up. <laughs> I, I backed up and I was behind him to his right. And so he could give me signals like up, down if he wanted. He didn't. He was fine that show. He didn't give me any signals like up or down. But he, um, but he went, Tracy died soon after the long time. I said, warning, but under the mic. And I went, hold up, man. Hang on. I got something for that. Because we had just talked about effects. He, I right. was like, do you want me to do sp specific effects? He's like, you just do your thing. And I was like, cool. So when he did that, I stopped him and said, I got one for that. Can you play it again? And I was ready with it. And with Tracy dies, you know, and when he went, I made this like bouncing delay yep. that went all over the place. And then he, and then I pulled it and then he went just after. So it really worked well. Yep. And then all he did is lean back during rehearsal and he just kind of nodded and like, yeah, that'll work. So it was always sort of, um, oh, and then he said, can you give me that voice you gave me? on musicology the low voice and i was like sure and i had the thing called up already i was ready for it so then it makes them sound like that right and it actually descends so it goes i i i i and he said let's start the show with that i'm going to talk a bunch and right. have it have it be going down the echoes be going down and as soon as i start the batman theme then you pull that effect and i'll start playing and i went cool well what he didn't tell me in all the hours of rehearsal and all the fun we had, we like la we were laughing about shit, smoking and joking. 
Right. It was all fun. And like, remember bunkers when Margaret, you know, and like yeah. he would bring, and we would, oh, I remember that. Yeah, I remember. And it was sort of a fun night. It was like a really good night on the 20th. When the show started on the 21st, I had to switch to the second playlist and hit that song 23 and run the smoke machine and call up, you know, his, and, and then the doors opened and the yellow light behind him and he walked up, stopped the smoke machine. I looked over at John, the other engineer, like, stop, stop, stop you know, and then all of like, you had to be a Dr. Octopus, you know, right. like, and so then he walks up on stage, starts, and I just thought, I think I'm supposed to have it on right now. And I just had it on and he went, Paisley, 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 Paisley. You know, and it just did that echo, and I was like, that worked. And he kept going, blah, 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 blah. and it was just a mess, right? Right, right? He wanted it to be devolving chaos. And then as soon as he started, uh, he was talking about his dad, and I was like, where's this going? Right. But it still had the echo on. So and none then, of that was in rehearsal, you had new. No, we didn't even so you try. You didn't know, like, when he, those effect. I mean, no, you just he had the just said, on. start the show with it, and then right. I'll, when I start playing Batman, then turn it off. Yeah. So I didn't deviate from what he told me. I didn't just like guess and go, I don't think it should be on here. I just left it like he instructed. And then he went, when about blah, 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 blah. You know, it just was doing all this stuff. And then when he finally goes, blah, 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 Batman, he went, dun, 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 dun. and he started to play the Batman theme. I sort of faded it out. And then he said, and then my dad, blah, blah, blah. and then he went into this thing. And then two, three songs in, I went, Oh, this is autobiographical. Like this show is an autobiographical right. autobiographical account. Yeah. He didn't he never mentioned that the night before. Huh. What do you think he was trying to say in that? I don't think he was trying to say anything. I just think it was a solo performance. I wouldn't read more into it than it was. Hmm. Was he just rolling? Like he I, was just in the vibe and I, this I, is I'm doing me. Well, think of it this I I don't know. But if I think, if I reverse engineer it, yeah. you can either play like 20 songs or you can try and make a show out of it. And I think what he was doing was adding a linear element huh. to actually make it a dramatical, a dr- dramatic, make it an event. Because he is a performer. And it's his first solo performance at Pacey Park. And, and here maybe, I am. And maybe right? his first solo performance ever. ever. Yeah. Right? I okay. mean, so, so the guy's walking the tightrope yep. and he's just like... I better put a hey, story to this. I better I'm put a put, story com- to this. Compelling. And I yeah. need to. I need to bring the audience into my life. It's why he talked about Lisa and Wendy. He brought them up. Uh, talked about uh, um, the performer uh, David Bowie, who had just passed. And when we were rehearsing the night before, he said, um, "At some point, I'm going to talk about David Bowie." And he said, I would play one of his songs, but I don't know any of them, so <laughs> I'll talk about them. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah. And then he said something about, I remember him saying something about David Bowie's nice, or they're nice to yeah, me, or something yeah, yeah. something like that. And then he kept going, and then just da-da-da-da-da, and then he mentioned me. And I remember, actually, at that point, I was sort of leaning over, because I was very tired, because we had, and um, I just happened to be leaning over, and he goes, you know, does it sound good? you know thank scotty or it yep. sounds good yep. because of scotty or something and i remember kind of looking up and going like hey thanks man you know <laughs> Here we it's go. like a yeah like a two-fingered salute you know like hey all right but he's walking a tightrope yeah he, he, he's he's, he's he, essentially in a new element that he can in fact control because i mean as you mentioned 12 times over the course of this interview like he's He's like at a, at a different echelon, and he's, so he's pressing himself, and 
like this is the arena. Well, do so I here th- we go? Do I think he was in high gear? No, hmm. no. He, I mean, he he wasn't he wasn't out of control or on the edge of it. He wasn't like a race car driver, like on the edge of setting new. Th- he was well within his confines of him, and he was. But he's he, doing him he at did another a ma- degree. I don't mean to say he wasn't giving his effort. He yep. was just fully in control. You, I saw right. an, I what I witnessed was an artist fully in control of their ca- capacity in their facility, and he was moving from these crazy key, like one key to the other. And I was thinking, well, that you know that's in B flat, doing? and that's in F sharp. Like, how's he going to get there? Like other than chromatically walk up, boo, do, 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 and like and start a song, I just thought, well, that's going to be an interesting change, and he did it. Like he, but he wasn't, he didn't do it like a learned musician. He, he did it with feel, and it was so beautiful. Like that's why I got in a little trouble when I said I thought he was a better keyboardist than he was a guitar player. And everybody, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, come on. Like, I mean, people shouldn't criticize you for that statement at well, all, it, right? Like, he, I mean, essentially what you are saying is this guy was in his element yeah. and he owned it. And while it may have not pressed him to the limits, like, he pressed it to the limit. Like, yeah. he brought something new to the equation. What he was bringing new to the equation was an exposition of himself. He it was here, vulnerability. Heretofore, he had never been that vulnerable. Right. He had always been in control, and he thus the tears. That's thus the tears. Thus the tears. Everybody else would cry. That's why he'd bring everybody else to tears. That's right. But 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 bringing himself to tears and the vulnerability that existed therein was like a a a new echelon, and you hadn't experienced that. Every good performer knows that you, generally speaking, you don't want to emote the thing that you want your audience to emote. Oh, shit. It's a trick. Like, yeah. then you're already showing them the way. Yeah, you're going to yeah. cry, and then they're going to cry. You want to have your performance so strong that people cry. And you're looking at the spotlight going, yeah. like that, and they start yeah. crying. Otherwise, it's a parlor trick. Well, what do you you're think bringing about, them to that emotion. What do you think about his career in relationship to that? Because, like, I mean, this guy dies in 2016, right? Like, in, like, his career, to your point, like I don't want to, I don't want to emote more than my audience emotes. Yet, four months before I die, mm. I am going to emote. Are you asking if I think there was anything behind that? I don't know. I'm just asking. Like, I don't. How think, does how how does he get there? I think um, it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't. <laughs> fair. But what I, think I that's fair. But but it's interesting. At the very least, it's. I mean, I feel this like this is a not worthwhile... financial advice. No, I feel like it's a. Wor- <laughs> I feel like it's a worthwhile question, right? Because, because I mean, what, what I'm contrasting is you, you're telling me on one side, like, hey, I had tears at the soundboard, and I looked around, and I saw people crying to this song over the course of however many years, however yeah. many gigs, and I'm telling you, the only time I saw this guy cry at however many gigs was the singular experience. Do, really, it, it, it's it's. Do it's, I think it's interesting. It, Do I think it was interesting that he did this performance four months before he died sure but i don't think it was a sign of anything and i think you could be you could do all the csi you wanted to on it and no one could prove anything any either way it's Fair it's enough. um it's it, it's it's possible that he was moving in a direction that was going to be more emotive yeah. he certainly that concert was he was um i don't he didn't i don't I don't remember him going for tissue. Okay, so I had tissues for him because of that night, 
at every one of the shows in Australia. Yeah, I had a box different. of tissues down down to his right. Um, he usually used a cane to come on, and he would lay the cane down, and it was always sort of there, um, the tissue box. Next to the mic, I had a mic microphone by his foot, so when he stomped, I could actually put that in the PA so that you got Sweet. some sense of rhythm. Um, uh, so... The, the the vanity thing, the Denise thing, that, that I mean that that's um, maybe coincidental to, to all that or, or, or adjacent to it. But he, I maybe he was going to try and move in a direction that was going to be more emotive and well, un, I, th- I think too he was also studying to work on the book, the auto, the autobiography. You mm. know what I mean? So that's I a think good point. So there's a connection a of like I'm I'm gonna you know. I'm going to try these piano and microphone shows out. You know, who knows what's going to happen. Maybe he's going to do uh, half a piano and a microphone show, you know, once the book comes out and then the second half of the show is with the band or something. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? I don't know. It's a different point in his career. But yeah, it's a different, definitely a different point of in his career, more a point of reflection. And that's why I think it'll be super important to, and it's just my opinion and it matters as much or as little as anyone else's, but you can release, he's gone. Yeah. So you can release all the stuff you want every day. You can release a song a day until the end of time. And to me, it's not really doesn't matter much because he's he'll never walk in and change the temperature of a room anymore. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it's just all for naught. Um, I believe that this piano show on the twenty first of January. You can release all the Australian ones or Atlanta. I don't think they multi-tracked Atlanta. Shame what? on whoever mixed that. <laughs> but I multi-tracked all the shows in, in um, Australia and the Paisley Park show. Someday it's going to be released. And I've already, not in so many words, but I've already been asked to be a part of that when it's released to give my insight into all those things. Right. It'll be a super duper important part of his career, that the release of that show, because it was exposing someone who, again, had never up until that point been really emotive in, right. in the, the behind him, the, the thing. So tell me, you know... <clears throat> about the canon of prince right like you think about prince and he i mean you listened to him when you were in high school you lived the purple rain era you saw all things michael bland act one glam slam yeah the various stages through his career i mean the canon of prince is is interesting right like when we start thinking about history Mm -hmm. and projecting ourselves into a hundred years from now, assuming we all make it a hundred years from now. Like what, what does, what does Prince's legacy mean? Do you think? I think that remains to be seen. Hmm. I'm not sure what it means. I, I, I'd like to think that it's that he's going to live on and his music is important because I think it is. But um, why do you think it is? Um, because he was an artist who challenged our um, our what we thought of ourselves. Hmm. He, he made us. What do you mean by that? He he asked us questions at least early in his career about who we were. Are we? Am I black or white? Am I straight or gay? He wasn't afraid to challenge conformity for sure. I wrote about that in the box set. Mm-hmm. Like ta- talking about courage, talking I, I, about I, I Mark's got, got the box set. I got the box set. <laughs> he, he was excited no, it, to show. It, us. I know. And he kept gra- He went and grabbed his bag. I was like, "Is this guy leaving mid interview?" No, no. We're gonna we're gonna hit the box set it's, real quick because um, this, this is where he, we're gonna this is where we're gonna kind of conclude. He, so I got the box set. Prince was an artist who challenged 
um, the conventional <clears throat> thought about what we thought about each other and what we thought of ourselves. So he talked about, uh, in there, I put a quote about Ralph Waldo Emerson. Yeah, you had it. It was back there a little bit. It's right in the center, I thought. Uh, it's yeah, I one it. page <laughs> off the center. I think I'm, it's, I'm, yeah, there it is. I'm flipping pages right here. Well, it was about, uh, it might be later than that, but he, he, he did at, he's, so dark we, we were i think he was gonna he was gonna meet he was gonna right meet here. um i think it was andre 3000 the okay. artist was in was waiting to meet with prince yeah. and some other artists and prince and i were talking and he said um before i wrote that uh thing in the box set he said um you see what i'm gonna go in here and tell these guys is that they have to be courageous it takes courage to do what we do and to really push things and I said, well, you know what, Ralph Waldo Emerson. And I said, you know Ralph Waldo Emerson, right? And he goes, of course. But I don't think he did. <laughs> he did. <laughs> he think he was bullshitting me. But he said, of course. And I said, well, he said that whosoever shall be a man shall be a nonconformist. Like not conforming. And I said, uh, it's something like um, uh, there's nothing at last sacred except the integrity of one's own mind. I think that's the quote. It's pretty close assimilation of what of what mm -hmm. Ralph Waldo Emerson said about it. I'm and, gonna read it in a second, so and um, that's pretty good. And I haven't read that thing in at least 15 years. And I here but, we are. But I like <laughs> I like that Emerson was talking about con courage over conform. I named it the piece "Courage Over Conformity." Prince never conformed to the industry. He always fought the industry. He always wanted to uh, fight convention, and he did it his way. And he's important almost as much for that as he is for the music he left us because long after the, when doves cry or purple rain is the fashion courage will be conformity will be are you going to fight conformity you're going to go with it so his principles at his core i think he was an artist not only in search of himself which is a big one he always seemed to me to be in search of himself, but he wasn't afraid to ask tough questions of others too. So his canon may be in not his music. Oof, I'm going to get in trouble now. I can fucking <laughs> There we it. go. There we go. It may be in what he was saying. What's important to us? Is Freddie, is the song Baltimore important or is what he was trying to say in the song important? I think it's what he was trying to say in the song. So and just using the music to yep. to get the message that. out. Yep. Yeah. So if you read on page whatever of this uh, fantastic couple, book. how many? Let's get figure out exactly how many behind the center it is. Yeah, I don't know. We'll figure it out. The so, staple is nearby. But, but the no, it's, it's, seriously, it's, no, it's this it's is right. the center. This is Hold the on. center. Oh, oh shit! Yeah, he told me Prince is in the center. Prince is in the center. He said, "He said I'm gonna put it right in the center." On the phone, he told me he's gonna put it in the center. Right and then he puts the a picture of himself in the center. Right in the center. I'm not gonna one, blame him. I didn't tell yeah. you what it is. It yeah. is me. Yeah. So, <laughs> courage over conformity. And here's the quote that you wrote from Ralph Waldo, Waldo Emerson: "Courage over conformity. The virtue in most requests in society is conformity." Conformity loves not realities or in creators, but names and customs. Whose would be a man must be a nonconformist. Nothing is at last sacred but the integrity of your own mind. Yep. 
he loved being a nonconformist. And I think when I said that to him, I said a little abbreviated version of that quote. I had to look yeah, it up later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But I did tell him, uh, kind of talk, tell back to him what he wanted to go in and tell Andre 3000, is you can't be a conformist. <clears throat> and he, he was against the system from the start. From when he was getting Coca-Cola bottles thrown at him on the Rolling Stones and right. fucking tomatoes. <laughs> like, who brings a Come tomato on. to a Rolling Stones show? But you ask the revolution, they'll tell you the stories, man. It was not pretty. And he challenged conformity from the very beginning. And that might be his legacy. It might not be the material. It might be what he was trying to say. Well, and I'm not talking about Daddy Pop yeah. or Te Amo Corazon or yeah, some of these yeah, bullshit songs. Yeah, you're, you're bringing this at a whole different level. It's, it's about... It's about other things. Go. Sorry, Dustin. When I left Paisley Park in 1994 to embark upon my own career as a live sound engineer, I took with me the knowledge that would help carry me through working through working for some of the top acts in pop music. None, though, that have embodied as much courage as Prince, a revolutionary in his life as well as in his art. Prince belongs to what may be vanishing breed. In an age of conformity, he reform he remains a defiant nonconformist. Yep. And do then, you remember writing that? I do. And I remember um, the line after that was he believes in and belongs to himself. And of where, course where, where was that? That was right after the line you end up. In an age of conformity, he remains a defiant nonconformist. Non he believes in and belongs to himself. So I get the phone call from Lynn in the morning. I mean, I get the, the, I send the email to Lynn. I send that thing to Lynn. And then in the morning, I get the phone call from Prince. And I answer the phone. And he said, hey, I read what you wrote. And I liked it. Can I have your permission to remove one line? And I said, what line? And he said, he believes in and belongs to himself. And I said, okay. And he said, you know who I belong to? And I went, right. Because I, th I, I thought right. he meant Jehovah. And he did. He belongs to Jehovah. So I said, yeah, I think it still works. I wasn't looking at it, but I said, yeah, I think it <laughs> yeah. still works. And so he did. He took that line out. Right. But what I think is cool, what he'll never be given, for which he'll never be given credit, is that he asked my permission to remove a line from something I wrote about him. He didn't have to ask. Yeah, what he, he was he, saying he, was authorship is important to me. Yeah, right. I care. I care about I the mean, authorship of this stuff. And that's a big fucking clue right there. Like this dude cared about the authorship of his own material and then he cared about it for his like longtime sound guy right that's important that's a clue that's like a fucking scooby-doo clue <laughs> that shit is easy here we are there's like, a he, footprint he, he, it's he, like he's yeah. a different dude he's different and he <laughs> cared about authorship and i can never emphasize that enough like he really cared about um about authorship and about artistic integrity yeah. His seemingly endless desire to give birth to new music and challenge the conformity which now rules the music business. After all, should music be a business? To me, it is best left as an experience. Yep. What do you mean by that? It's best left as an experience. Music, um, nothing Mozart ever wrote in his, in his lifetime was recorded Mozart never heard any thing that he wrote like played back for him it was just you had to experience it in the room and then it was gone 
And if you wanted to hear it, you had to go hear live musicians. I think all music should be played live. And that's it. It would put Dustin out of a job, <laughs> but it would. But do you understand where I'm going with yeah, that? Like, it's never right. going to happen. It's an experience. It's never though. fucking happen ever. But if you just experience it and you're in a room, I think in a way it's more. It's a little bit more pure. Yeah. And that nobody makes money off of it. You just share it. It's sort of like air. Like if we didn't have music, most people would go, "Oh my God, without music, I'd die." Well, without air, you'd die too. I wish we and we don't have to pay for air yet. <laughs> but they're working on that but um you, you music should just be one of these things that we don't have to pay for and you just get but there's record companies and there's 360 deals and there's all sorts of bullshit that gets in the way and those are all the things that got between prince and the person in the first row and that's what he always tried to do was remove the people that weren't part of the transparency of getting that experience to fans and that's what i love about him he went out as somebody who still cared about, sure, like he liked money, but it, right. how much did he like money? He had fucking gold laying around in the safe <laughs> at Paisley Park. And, the you know, like he didn't really mm. care. He made some comment about a wallet once. He goes, do I look like I have a wallet on me? And <laughs> he was, it might have been Takuma who said something to him or something. He goes, like I have a wallet. I haven't had a wallet since I was 10. Because <laughs> that's how prints are old. Well, just... It probably fucked with how his ass looked. <laughs> that was probably on the surface of it. But he's just a guy who didn't let things like that get in the way. He once tried to teach me a lesson about buying a PA. Oh, man, that was a good one. That was a nice little discussion that happened in Takumi's office. He wanted to buy his PA. He thought it would be great. So he had me price out a PA in it. You know, there's a lot of people hours in trying to this a pull PA to bring on the road to bring on the road yeah. and then i i brought it into him and it was like 30 pages long and all he did is go to the last page and look at the price <laughs> and then he turned the page over and he wrote how much is it and i said 1.6 million dollars and he started to write 1.6 he started to draw over it and actually cool it was cool it kind of looked like the 1999 cover <laughs> like you know what i mean like he didn't make right. a dick the one yeah but he drew kind of, he was drawing, he was doodling right. on the 1.6. thinking. Just 1.6, 1.6, kept scribbling. And I was just sitting there patiently and I knew enough not to, I was like, well, let him mull it over. Maybe he'd just go, all right, and then get up. But he didn't. He said, is that a lot of money to you? And I said, what, for a PA? No, that's how much it costs. He goes, no, to you. Is that a lot of money to you? And I said, well, I don't have that much money. And he said, would this gear be good for years and i was like yeah probably five or ten years yeah we could do it and he goes see scotty you got to stop thinking about money as being a real object it's not even real and he said um how long would it take you and i to make 1.6 million dollars and i said i don't know like it'd take a and he goes no you and me how long would it take you just you and me and i said and he said, how would you make $1.6 million? Like, this is a test. <laughs> yeah, 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 here we go, man. Yep. We're, we're, we're going to roll. Ticket prices. He said, how would you do it? And I said, well, and I had, you know, like you're on your feet. It's right? you on the piano. It was me right it, back to the right it of was, you. It was almost, it was eerily close to that. Because I said, well, what I would do is I would charge, I would go to theaters, and I would have you on a piano and a keyboard and a base. What year was this? This is 2002. Oh, shucks. So you are living some no, premonition this, and, of that and this shit. is exactly how I described <laughs> it. I said, we'd, we'd run out theaters 
and then I could set up sound and lights and you would have a piano and a guitar. I said piano and a keyboard, a guitar and a bass. And I said, and then the audience could ask us questions. And then, and then you would have questions on a, uh, cue cards. Or I said, uh, not cue cards. I said, uh, what it was like recipe. Card? Uh, I said yeah, like yeah. file cards or, you know, file three by fives. And so I said, <laughs> and then you would take the questions from the audience and you could play some and then talk about things and play some. And he goes, how much would you charge? And I said, I don't know, like 2000 seat arena. I mean, uh, theater, like 300 bucks. And he goes, <laughs> okay, how much is that? And I said, I don't know. I think it's like 500 grand. And he goes, yeah. And, and I said, well, if we did one every three, every week for three weeks. Here we are. We, we, we paid no, 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 it's better. Because I said, well, we'd have to do three shows. It would take us like, okay, so three weeks is the answer. Right. And then he goes, cool. And he gets up and he walks out the door. And before he goes out the door, he like grabs the edge of the door. He leans back. Because, of course, 500,000, you know, 500, like 500, 300 right. bucks times 2,000 is 500,000. Yeah. So three shows is 1,500 or 1.5 million, mm-hmm. right? Prince has the wherewithal to, before he leans, uh, goes out the door, he leans back and he goes, you're 100,000 short. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, and of course he walks off, cool as the other side yeah. of the pillow. And I'm going, oh, fuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your math was a little you off. But that's totally 000, Prince. 100,000 at least. Still, that, we ain't happy. Oh, no. That's totally Prince. And it was like super cool. And it, it, so I'm in, and I've said this before, I'm in no way taking credit for the piano and microphone show. Right, he, right. He's, he, that he was, had a, he had but, visions, but, though. But, but you, but he was the only artist that could, do you going to, the fuck is Celine Dion going to make, you know, a, do a solo show and charge? No. Right. She can't play four instruments and, like nobody can do that except him. Not Bruno. Nobody. No one now, and no one back then. So and you was, stand by that. Yeah, for sure. It's so compare all the contemporary music scene versus Prince. Um, I'm not saying he's the greatest musician ever. Um, will we listen to him in 220 years, like we do Mozart? Maybe. No. I don't think so. Sorry. I don't think we, and I'm not trying to be controversial. I just yeah. don't think we will. Because if you Google right now, if anyone is listening to this, Google's Prince, I defy you to tell me that he shows up on the first page. Yeah. So it's a matter of it's visibility. William, it's William or Harry. Yeah. It's it's a matter of visibility. If the, well, if the, if the people running things do the right things, they, they will position him to a point where he is remembered in 200 yeah. years. And if they do the wrong thing, they won't. Yeah. So you have to talk to people that those in those positions that are making those decisions to make the right decision, not based on what they want, but what is best for the brand and the 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 legacy. Yeah. And I guess my position is, and you know, we're doing this gig on June third, self promotion. Here we go. But I mean, I believe if people have access to Prince's music and not just the surface level mm-hmm. view of his music, I believe that it will pull people in and it will resonate in people. Right. So it's a matter of access. It's a matter of, uh, you know, people's ability to engage in it. If the population has the ability to engage in the music, it will resonate in people's souls. Yes. If they do not, 
it'll fall flat because there just won't be enough visibility. And it's it's more there. than more than just having it on your phone, being able to stream. No, it. no, it's 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 that next level depth, right? Um, and being able to, if people like you talk about Prince freaks and like where the fan community is, if people gain access to it and see it, like that'll perpetuate. If they don't, possibly. I I I I'm gonna go out on a limb and say I don't think it's gonna happen. Yeah. And here's why, because Barriers. he, because no, because he was a prolific live performer, and when he's gone, That's I don't think there. the music is enough to carry it. Huh. I'm super sorry, but I'm super honest, and I don't mind being uh, challenged for that. The reason is because um, he was a important performer, and he had a lot to say in his time. But time never stands still. And if you write, you look at the songs that have held up over time, no. they've been classic songs that say something that's sort of timeless. And Prince, a lot of the, what he stamped, what was stamped on him was a time. Hmm. And so you just time out. Purple Rain might be listened to. And to, do you, are you like you, I really respect your point of view. Are, do you, what do you think? I, I mean, I think like you said, it's, uh, it's up in the air still, um, but I do agree with you that there was something about Prince and seeing him perform live mm. that pulled you in. That's what pulled us in. Yeah. We went to Paisley Park. We saw Prince perform live. And for me, being like a DJ coming up and just being into music, it was mm. nothing I'd ever seen before mm. or experienced. And I wanted more of it. Yeah. You know? So, and the other thing Mark and I have been talking about recently is... Uh, Prince and I had a conversation one time about moving the needle. If you're not moving the needle, you're not doing anything, right? Mm -hmm. And without him being here to move the needle, it's hard. It's hard. It's gonna. It, it will be. It will be difficult. I mean, hopefully, we hope. We hope his music is listened to. You know, hundred, two hundred years from now. I mean. Okay, but then, then's my then is my question for you guys, and this is the important question that I want to ask: Is it enough? Is what's happened so far, if if he isn't listened to in 200 years, has it been enough? Is it okay? Is it? Is it okay if what he's done and what's gone on, if he never streamed and never sold another record? Can it be okay enough? I'll let you answer that first, Dudley. Because <laughs> you guys know you have to be okay with that. Right, yeah. I what mean, is the reason for wanting it to be more than it is? It, right. it, it just simply has been. I mean, I guess now it's just like you want to hear what you haven't heard before, right? Yeah. Right? You want... Okay. You're re, you're, so because then, you can't see them perform live and there's not a new album dropping or, you know, there's not going to be a song released about the the temperature in the, in the you know, United States or what's going on around the world. Yep. Like, you still want... You okay. want something, right? So, you're so, still trying to find that purple high. So, so he Welcome didn't, to Purple High. So, <laughs> so he didn't know that Donald Trump was president. He didn't know right. about the murder of George Floyd. He didn't right. know about a lot of these things. What would he have said about it? We kind of know because you can look back at other things he said, but... Well, I think what, it would have been amazing, like... But it what won't he would have. No, I know, but I'm, if, he would, if he still would have been around during the whole pandemic and stuff, like the stuff that would have been coming out of Paisley Park would have been... So my question again is, is it enough? What he told us about himself and ourselves, is that enough? And if not, if your answer is no, and I want more, and I need more, and they should release the whole vault, right, right, right. what you're saying then is I lack. 
Yeah. Right. I lack. And you need to give me what I want because I'm lacking. Right, right. When I'm trying to, maybe I'm not trying to say it because honestly, I don't really care. As callous as that sounds, I don't care if they release anything else. I don't care if they release the well, at least piano, piano show. Come on, I don't. No, it doesn't matter because it happened and it went on and it right. was important to people in the room. And then if you were there, you were there. If you weren't, you weren't. And then in the life, and that life probably also leads back on. to your feeling after a show is done, where you feel kind of empty, like it's yeah, it's over, it's done. That's but that's it. But can you live with lack? Yeah, can, see, can you? I mean, and maybe it's lack, and maybe it's not. I think the the jury is ultimately out, right? These are most often my favorite moments of our collective courage, right? You're talking about all things him playing the after shows, etc., mm-hmm. with no set list, rented band gear, and no curfew. Prince fearlessly into composition, both written and oftentimes not. And leave his fans, the people that mean the most to him, hungry for more, right? And this is you saying, like, how do you leave him hungry for more when he's not here, right? These are the actions that I think set Prince apart from his contemporary. His seemingly endless desire to give birth to new music and challenge the conformity which now rules the music business. After all, should music even be a business? To me... It's best left as an experience. That's fucking good writing, man. I don't care who you are. <laughs> no. and you know what? And it's, I, it, and it, I had, it's better off left as an experience. I had never written anything in my life. I had never written anything. And when Lynn called and said, he wants you to write something. And I said, well, what does he want? And she said, I don't know, man. He's super cryptic. Like, <laughs> and, fucking and, Prince. And she said, write your she name. Said, <laughs> she said, Renato... Uh, 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 or John, John wrote his ten favorite songs or something like right. that. Come on, and then and then Rhonda wrote about her bass, yeah, like the bass she was playing. And I went, oh, yeah. And I said, well, what, why does anyone care what the sound guy thinks? And she said, because you're responsible for it. Prince said you're responsible for this album. And I said, cool. And I just and then I sat there and I I uh, it was at least an hour where I just right. thought, well, what do I write? And then I would write like one sentence. I remember writing on my little Sony computer. I wrote one sentence. And I thought, oh, that's a good sentence. And I moved it down. Like I hit enter, 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 right. enter. And then I write another sentence. And I go, well, that that's that means something. Right. And, I re- and then I sort of assembled it. Pieced and then it, it really kind of pieced it together and it made sense. But that's good writing. That's true. I think music should, that's a reflection of really how I still feel. Music is best left in as an experience and not as a, um, a commodity. Yeah. Because it moves us and it makes us. Like physically and, and emotionally moves us, so I, I don't. I think it should all be free. And, I think it should all be free. And and I think you know. I mean, maybe to conclude this episode of Purple Highs, thank you, Scotty. This was fantastic. I mean, so much fun. The various rabbit holes in which we find ourselves. I mean, this is. I mean, shit. This is what we want to do right here, right? Great conversation. Great conversation. Meaningful, hitting all things, and and I think it is about. Where the meaning lends us, right? Whether or not that means Prince is living on in 200 years or not, right? It's like, what what is that music doing for us? And how is it, to Dustin's point, moving the needle today? Yeah. How's it moving the needle today? What does that look like for us? And, and it, I, I just want to make it really clear. I don't think it matters. I think what he did was enough. Yeah. Um, I don't think he owes us anything. Fair enough. I could probably, I feel a little emotional saying that, but I mean it. He doesn't owe 
anyone anything. He left it there. He did everything and he did it his way and that is enough. What else do you, what the fuck else do you want? Maybe that's why he didn't have a will too. He's like, that's it. That's it. Like I left you, I, is this not enough? Do you want more? Like what else do you want from me? I gave it all. Yeah. And he always left it all on the, I mean, he left it on the stage. Apparently he had a lot more to go too. So you just don't know. And it is, I'm just saying I don't lack. And I think people that I think people are candidly, I think they're selfish if they want more. I want this and I want this show released and I want this thing and I want you to remaster this thing. And I just say, fuck you. (laughs) You You left out there. If you don't get, you don't get shit and you don't deserve it. So you got what you, you got what Prince wanted you to have and don't deserve anymore and quit lacking. If you're lacking, that's more a reflection on you and not on Prince. So you don't think the stuff in the vault should be released or you don't care? I don't, I don't think any, I, it should all be, release it all. Oh yeah. And you know what? You know what would be the ultimate thing? Give it all away for free. Hell yeah. How about just release it all and not charge and not make any special editions and all that shit. I like the song a day. Song a day. They Here could, we go. They could they could do a subscription to that. Well, <laughs> because, but anyways, because that's... it is it's a commodification. Everybody's everybody's made it a commodity out right. of music, when really it exists in the air, and you can't hold it. Yeah. So why why should I charge money for something? Is this sound like Prince or what? <laughs> yeah. See, like, here it is, man. <laughs> why are you charging shit for something I can't hold? Right. So just let it happen. But as we know, Prince the money was important to him too. It's like oh, he gotta, would, he would talk eat, about. You gotta you know. After all, should music even be a business? Yeah. Just quote from you. I stand by that, and that's 20 years ago. (laughs) To me, it's best left as an experience. Ladies and gentlemen, big thank you to Scotty Baldwin. The only headline after all of this is going to be Scotty Baldwin said, fuck you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's not true, man. I mean... We could, but, but see that again. That I'm. I don't mean to keep this going. As yeah. a yeah, we can keep going. But we listen, got... what that is is that people are gonna piecemeal that shit together, right? Take yeah. stuff out context of context matters, though. and they're gonna say, um, "He said that you don't deserve shit, and fuck you." Yeah, but that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you deserve all of Prince's music for free for now. Put that on the people that are and running. Move stuff. the needle move and the move needle. the needle. <laughs> and you know what? I mean, I think I think the context matters. And I mean, read read the liner notes. One day alone, I'm holding the book right now. I'm just gonna read it one more time and again. That's hard. You know what? That's After hard. After all, should music even be a business? To me, it's best left as an experience. Experience the music. Experience what Prince did. Experience the legacy. Experience what he left us. And let's not let's not overthink this whole thing. Let's find that vibe and let's own the experience of it all, right? I mean, that, that's all what you did. We get that purple high. Yeah, purple high. There we go. Good commercial. Might have our new sample. There. Yeah, here we go. Mark Bondi. Drop. Mark Bondi here with my co-host. DJ WD. Rocking those purple highs. Thank you, Scotty Baldwin. This was fantastic. Peace and... <laughs>